We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVergilio. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Scared money don't make money, you know. Welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm your host, James DiVergilio, alongside Alan Williams, and this is the 2022 season preview. I can't believe it, Alan. We're here. We're back. It is officially college football season. Let's go. Here we are back in Studio B. I'm really stoked. I love this moment each year, getting back on the sticks here, making it happen. Excited to talk some Gator football. You know, you kind of let it lay fallow for a little while, have our little peek in in SEC media days. But now we turn the corner here. It's August, just a couple of weeks away from Gator football and some football this weekend. If you're a week zero fan, have some action for you. We do have some action indeed, and thankfully my voice is back, yeah. which which makes me feel great. I uh, I really suffered through last podcast, perhaps more than any of you know, <laughs> trying to make it through there. So it, it feels nice. I'm not taking for granted that I can I can speak and know that words will actually come out of my mouth. Um, but good times on our last episode, better times on this episode, because as Alan mentioned, football is here this week, this Saturday. We begin with week zero. As always, if you like the content on this podcast, follow us on social media, sub to our YouTube channel, where I will begin bringing you breakdowns each and every week starting after the Utah game. And then, of course, as always, support our efforts on Patreon by becoming a patron where you can drop us a dono to continue Alan and I's, I'm going to say seasonal, but really it's year-round, but perhaps not as often as other podcasts, but heavy seasonal with year-round focus on Gators football content. Alan, we do have some news. Bama Shane, as we talked about, retired off to greener pastures. He still listens to the podcast uh, continuously, but he is a, a executive coach now hmm. out in Alabama. He's big and time. He's big time, and it took up way too much of his time, so he had to retire. But in comes Carly, and Carly, back and forth, longtime listener to the podcast. You've heard her name before, and we mentioned people that uh, are on the dono list. But she had said she wanted to do it, and I said, well, Carly— we're welcome to have you. This is going to be really, really exciting, but you have to have a nickname. And she said, oh, I, I have a nickname. And she wants us to refer to her as the Commissioner, where she promptly informed me that she runs, as a commissioner of Fantasy Football League, 
where last year she came in dead last. This is a big year for her. She's going to have to really up Time to her. rebound. Yeah, it's time to rebound. But she added this to her plate, editing the videos uh, for us. So we're very thankful to that. Hopefully, Carly. Carly, that will only help you in your fantasy football endeavors. Where it should be noted for our listeners that uh, I trounced Allen last year in our league Man. and took home the championship, and that felt really good. Yes, uh, I, they'll speak to my fantasy football abilities. I've been in the same league since, I think, 2003 or four. Yet to win it. I'm the I'm the Chicago Cubs of this fantasy football league. Maybe one year. And Allen's been close many times. A lot of heartbreakers lot for of Allen, heartbreak. uh, as as any of us who have played fantasy football have experienced. All right, on to some new patrons: Trevor Rose and Michael Farinas. Welcome, coming in with small donos, and then a level up from an old small to a new small for Lon Stafford. Thanks for all your support. And then a level up from Don Bergeron from medium to large. Thank you so much. And Alan, I can report. Wow. Tease this last month. There could be a new throne sitter here on the GNFP. And in fact, we have that Cooper and Kylie Craig, a dual throne, a dual throne. They are ruling on the iron throne of the Gator nation football podcast. Uh, In case you're new to the podcast, Obviously, we accept donations, and if you happen to have your dono be higher than the current person who has the highest dono, then you are on the throne. And a new reign has begun out with Jason Walker, who had a really peaceful off-season reign, watching Napier take his, his first crack here at the head coaching position. And Cooper and Kylie Craig will presumably, who knows, we'll see what happens this week, be on the throne for the first game against Utah. We'll find out. There's still plenty of time left for that. In addition to sitting on the throne, of course, we have a bunch of Dono legends who have given more than $500 in total support and or have been on the throne before. Let's begin with the aforementioned Jason Walker, the big homie, Lil Payton, Constantine, Double O, Alexander Leventhal, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stash Me, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marcellisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Hondrick, James Truitt, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Jamie Galliano, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Cooper and Kylie Craig, Mark Rubenstein, Tyler Romer, and Craig Scarado. Such an illustrious list. And you too can join them anytime you so desire. But thanks for all of you who listen, and thanks to all of you who have supported us on Patreon and have been there for a long, long time. And as always, we will begin next week reading off everyone who has given us a dono as we do each and every year because really alan and i are just always thankful to be doing this in general it's, it's a, a good time. liturgy of thankfulness there okay season preview time let's get to it let's start big picture let's begin with the state of the program how are we feeling about it what are our projections james let me ask you this question you don't know what's coming give me two words you would use to describe the program currently Trending up. You okay. like that? You that's, like that? That's a nice phrase. There you yeah, go. You, you give me two words. Okay. Turn. I would say optimistic and systems. I like it. I'm glad you brought in systems. systems. We talked about systems earlier. Let's just talk right about systems because yeah. the state of the program is, I think, something you and I would rank very highly on our list. Alan and I are both very committed to efficiency. We're the type of people if we're if we're sitting in a restaurant or at a theme park and we see something that doesn't make sense efficiency wise, we're gonna notice it and we're gonna talk about it because it's just near and dear to our heart. And on the way up the stairs here into the studio, 
we had discussed how one of the best things about Napier is he's a very systematic guy. And I had said, you know, you can't go wrong with a system. And Alan, of course, correctly said, well, you can go wrong. You can believe in your system until it takes you down. And then I, I, you know, rectified my statement to say, well, you can't go right without a system. You well can't said. win without a system. You have to have a system. That's at least the light switch that needs to be on. And Billy Napier is a man with a system. Yeah, and not just a offensive system like the air raid. Like he has a plan and a structure for the entire program, seemingly. On down through the recruiting department, how the players function, what kind of socks they're wearing. For some people, that might be just too much to carry. He seems like he has delegated enough that it's not burdensome to him, at least at this point in his tenure. But yes, very systematic approach to the entire program. And I would, the other word I used was optimistic. You said trending up. This is a new beginning, right? Not, you know, when Alan, excuse me, Auburn hired Brian Harson. I don't think anybody was too excited, but there's probably a little bit of optimism. I think there's a lot of optimism right now around the skater program because of what's happening in recruiting, but because of, you know, Billy Napier's pedigree and the places he's been and, you know, it's a rosy outlook at this point. Now, cool. again, we, we haven't played any games. This is the beginning of his tenure, but there's a lot of optimism around the program. Yeah, especially for me, obviously, with, with our previous coaches, with McElwain, with, with Dan Mullen. I mean, I made a bet on air. You did. That I would have bet anyone $1,000 that Dan Mullen would not win an SEC title before he left. Uh, and he didn't. Now, obviously, I wasn't working against Dan Mullen. I hoped he would have won and I would have paid that bet out. But the point of that was my optimism clearly wasn't as high as it is now because on the air right now, I am not going to make that bet. I think Napier is capable of winning an SEC title. Uh, of course, I'm following my three-year test metrics. You've heard us as we follow the coaching surge, if you were listening last season, as to why Napier was our number one candidate. So clearly, Alan, I personally am coming in with a lot of optimism Although measured, right? I'm an investor by trade. Therefore, I live in a world of probability. The probability, in my opinion, is much higher that Napier wins an SEC title and Dan Mullen would have had based upon historical data and evidence. So for me, I'm coming in in a very optimistic place. I think that optimism has also been fueled by what you just mentioned. We've had an entire offseason of observing Billy Napier's system. I've gotten to go to several practices. I've gotten to talk with many people who work with him on a day-to-day -day basis. And all I hear are just glowing reports of what a great guy this is, but also just how fanatically organized he is. So there's two for two there. And on film, as I talked about last year, and I've broken it down on our channel, Alan, you can see what Louisiana produced. So from all angles that we can tell, he has the, re the, re the recipe and measure for success. The question we mentioned and what we're going to talk about all throughout this season and the next upcoming seasons will be this. Does what he has or have had at a smaller school, Louisiana, translate to the SEC and Florida? And can he win it? Because let's face it, the SEC has never been more competitive, Right. But can he even get himself into the upper echelon where we're a routine top three or four team in the SEC that can compete with Bama and Georgia? That will be what we're looking for. And that is going to be the question that no one can answer right now. But the probability of him doing so, I think, is lining up nicely 
And then that's going to be what's fun is what does his story ultimately write? What movie do we watch? We don't know. And that's why New Beginnings, as you mentioned, are very interesting. And that New Beginning is, you know, just a, just a few short weeks away from us. All right, let's start with Florida's place in the preseason polls. And that place would be unranked. Is that fair? I think it's pretty fair, right? What was our record last year? I don't know, crappy. Yeah, right, pretty bad. We won't even revisit that. We'll, we'll, we'll do our best not to revisit almost really anything. <laughs> I blocked a lot of the end of that season out of my brain. But very poor. And who, yeah. do we, who do we return from last year? A lot of those guys, but... A lot of those same guys. And a lot of those same guys weren't super talented guys, per se. Some were. So I think our unranking position feels about right. This feels to me, Alan, eerily similar in a different way, but eerily similar to when Urban Meyer took over for Florida. And the first year, and I'm, I think I'm going to say that a lot this year, the first year at Florida for Urban was not really a successful one. In fact, halfway through the year, you could argue things were not looking very good at all. And I had several friends in the team, and we referenced this before on this podcast, who mentioned a very impactful moment on an airplane as they were leaving a road game halfway through the year where Urban basically calls the entire team out and is like, look, this is it. This is the watershed moment. You either get on this bus and get going or you're out. I'm not tolerating this stuff anymore. We are unifying or we're breaking up and we're going to make a run at this thing. And then Florida really started to make moves at the end of that year with how they started to play and obviously launch themselves into the stratosphere into the following years. But I think it's sort of similar. Like, we're going to talk about this, Alan, but it's not even remotely realistic to think this Florida team this year is going to contend for anything. There's just not enough talent for that. And that was true of Urban's first year as well. So what you want to see is the culture and the style begin to move in a direction that is winning football. And therefore, we, we should be unranked. I think our schedule is difficult, which we're going to talk about. We play in the SEC. We have a lot of question marks. We're thin when it comes to certain positions. It's very reasonable for us to be unranked. Could we be somewhere in the low 20s? Sure. Unranked is fine with me. Yeah, if this was a different Florida program or maybe a different coach, you see, notice that USC is ranked pretty highly. Now they have some high-profile transfers. They've got a known quantity. Much easier schedule. Yeah, at head coach. I think unranked is fine. It. It wouldn't be shocking if the Gators were like 25th, but I think unranked is a fair assessment for the unknown. I think this team's probably better than that potentially, but unranked is right. And I, yeah, and as you talked about this season, that Urban Meyer for sure, there were some position groups, I think wide receiver, where he's, you're playing like walk-ons and converted quarterbacks and things like that because you're desperate. Anytime you have a transition out of necessity, like there's a firing, you're going to have some gaps. The roster is going to be depleted in certain position groups. So injuries can take a toll on you. Things can go poorly. And you know, that urban Meyer staff, they had to make adjustments too. They, for that team, like, you know, we need to add a fullback into this offense. We don't even know what a fullback is, but we got to put one in here because we can't run our stuff because we don't have the knowledge or the infrastructure or the people or the right players. And so there's going to be some, bumpiness and adjustments for this staff too as they learn what these players can and can't do and until they get the guys in here that can do what they want to do there's gonna be transition so yes unranked feels right now that's not where florida wants to be as a program entering into any kind of season is you know way off anyone's radar now it takes away some of the pressure but 
it just I think it's a good reflection that Florida's not even like a 27th. If you look at the others receiving votes, they're fairly far down there. So I guess you could say they're on the radar. People are they're getting votes from some people, but not many. No, and it's perfect. If I'm Napier, this is what I want. I mean, you want your team to start from the bottom and then build its way back up. You don't want any of your players starting a season thinking, hey, we're pretty good. You don't want any of your fans thinking that either. I mean, think if you're Billy, it's like, great. My foundation now is crumbled. If I even rebuild a facade of something, people are going to think that's nice. There's some improvement there. So it's a it's a great place personally. And also, look, we're, play, we're, we're facing Utah, a team we said at the end of last season was going to be top 10 this year. They're top 10. We're going to spend all of our time next week covering them, so we'll save that for then. But if you beat Utah right then, you'll be ranked. So it sure. also doesn't matter, but it's great for players to recognize, hey, you know what people think of you? They think you're not very good. And now you're going to play a game in a sold-out swamp, which doesn't happen all that often anymore, unfortunately, in a night game, in your new coach's opener, that you've spent an entire offseason building culture and identity, debuting a new offense, a new defense. If you're worthy at all, you'll beat this team and become ranked. And if not, you're going to be where you deserve anyway. So it's a great storyline, I think, for the Florida program. So speaking of storyline, that's my next question here. What is the biggest storyline for this season? I'll go ahead and go first on this one. For me, it's Anthony Richardson. I think this team goes as far as he can take them. And I think he's got enormous potential. We've talked about him a lot here. And again, he's got a floor that's pretty low because, you know, fair or not, he's labeled as injury prone. And so can his body hold up to what we're going to ask of him? That remains to be seen. Can he fulfill his enormous potential? Is he a mature enough player in person to make that happen? Of course, he's not what you would hope he would ultimately be after a season of playing. But if he's a star, Florida will be competitive in every game that they're in and win a lot of the games that maybe look on paper a little more like coin flips. If he's rather pedestrian or mistake-prone or injured, this Florida team is going to struggle, I think. So... For me, he's on people's radars, right? He, Some people are aware of him. Some people are on board with him. Other people are questioning him. I think as his narrative goes, so will this team. There's no doubt he's the most important person player-wise on Florida's team. And, and he's worth, we said, maybe two to three wins, especially if you look at wins above the next guy on the roster, most likely. That, that's going to be the biggest thing to follow. I think secondarily and equally as big as that for a, a meta story reason is how does Billy Napier's offense work in the SEC? Now, I've got a film breakdown out there. We've talked about it. I'm going to be covering it all year long. Let me start by saying this. The 49ers run a more complicated version of Napier's offense in the NFL, and it's a top 10 offense almost every year with a quarterback in Garoppolo that most people think is below average rather at best. pedestrian mm-hmm. and we'll go pedestrian to be nice and they're consistently a very high functioning offense florida this year will have some differences from the 49ers and also napier is certainly not trending to be at all as kyle shanahan has always trended to be sort of an offensive guru 
So we're going to see how well that works. Secondarily, Alan, the 49ers are about 50-50 run pass. Billy, as as we've talked about, is 57% run. How does that sit with Florida fans? Now, we've chronicled extensively that this offense by design is supposed to be throwing the ball down the field. In fact, in a nutshell, it's an offense that runs the ball and throws the ball fewer than other teams will in exchange for the fact that they're not going to turn it over, but they should also have a very high yards per pass. That's really important. If you look at the Niners, despite that they threw for the third fewest passes in the NFL last year, they were the second highest average yards per pass, and they were top 10 in yards thrown. That's what you're looking for out of this offense. If it works, that's what you're going to get. We mentioned at Louisiana that I think Napier's offenses were criminally low in passing yards completed because they did not have a quarterback who could complete accurate passes downfield. They would miss wide open receivers each and every week. They could have added 1,500 or 2,000 more yards to those totals. If that happens at Florida, if he has receivers wanting as open as he did at Louisiana, make no mistake about it, this will be a very exciting offense, even if we're not throwing it nearly as much as even I, someone who really prefers the wide-open system, would like to throw it. The vertical passing offense, the knockout punch offense, that's a significant thing. And that is why 49ers fans, they love their offense. It's an exciting offense. So will it sit with Florida fans, though, as we're adjusting to this, as Florida's getting used to it? as we deal with growing pains of not having the right personnel. Great point mentioning Urban with the fullback. Florida's personnel is not totally ready for this this season on offense. How do we handle that? What does that look like? How does Billy handle losses? What happens with the average fan that's perhaps not as in tune to who Billy Napier is and what he's done, but to him he's still sort of this guy from Louisiana who, like, he's not a big name, right? How do they handle that if we go 6-6? Six and six? So I think it's what does Billy do? How does his demeanor change? How does he handle the fans? How does he handle winning and losing? And do people endear themselves to his style of football? That's going to be, I think, a big thing. Because we know Florida fans, if they come on board with your style, then it's a match made in heaven. And if not, think of a Muschamp, even yeah. when he was winning. It's not a great place. So that, I think, is going to be big. Yeah, and it's interesting in Florida, the roster is a little bit of the inverse, right? So the Niners have those game breakers, Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, George Kittle, a lot of the guys who are just wreckers at every position. Florida doesn't have any of those guys. Very fine, stable people at running back, wide receiver, tight end is a little bit more, just even, just some dudes probably. And the tight end plays a heavy role in this offense potentially, especially playing a lot of two tight end sets. But at quarterback, the opposite. A guy who's a potential star rather than a game manager in Garoppolo. So see if Napier can make that work. Um, You're right. That isn't the other thing. Napier's ascent as a coach would be the other storyline. I think because it's there's so many pieces that have to move, I think most attention will be on Richardson. and that's But they're intertwined, of course. Okay, let's talk floor and ceiling. Why don't you go first on this? What do you think the floor is for the season, and what what is the ceiling? Are we talking record-wise? Yeah. Okay. I mean, you could be a little more. Yeah, yeah that's good. Uh, I, I think we, t- we, we, we hinted at this in the summer, and we wanted to see what would happen, how the team would form, what things maybe looked like and felt like. And I think 
this is going to be, as we said at the end of last show, a really interesting season because so many things can happen. This is a very unknown season one of a new TV show, and we don't know what's going to happen with the characters. And I think the floor of this could be low, and it could be low even if the coaches did a great job this season. And that's going to have to do with injuries, right? And so in investing, you can use a Monte Carlo simulation where you're going to run 10,000 different simulations on what the economic environment would look like. And you'll take your average return and your average center deviation, and you'll get this range of outcomes. And that will tell you, okay, well, 10% of the time, if things just don't go well economically, I'm going to be somewhere over here. And if they go really well, I'm somewhere over here, right? And it gives you a nice output. If we ran a Monte Carlo with Florida, that floor is is going to be relatively low because in the bottom 10% scenarios where you lose five or six key guys, which can happen during a football campaign, this team becomes very normal. And all of a sudden they look a lot like the teams they're already probably only slightly favored to beat. And now they look just like them. And now you have a lot of youth and you don't have a quarterback that you can trust as a backup if Anthony Richardson were to go down and you can start imagining your floor being Four wins? Wow. Five? I'd say four and a half is probably the real floor, depending yeah. on where things go. And again, that's the worst case scenario, right? And that's that's what happens. If you're Alabama, your floor is, you know, nine, because you could lose ten guys, but all your other guys are still so good, you're automatically going to be favored against still everyone else. Florida's not there, not with this team, not especially, not with this schedule. So I'm gonna set the I'm gonna set the floor at I think four and a half. That's what a floor should be. It's supposed to be, you know, what's kind of the worst case scenario. And the ceiling could Florida win 10 games if everything went right? And I think the answer to that question is yes, they could. If everything went right, you could win 10. 11, I don't see that happening. 10, if everything goes right. So I think it's a huge spread. You'd love to see it be more like 8 to 10. That's what we, that's what Florida's looking for. I want the floor to be 8 and the ceiling to be 12, right? Yeah. We're not there yet. So I'm going to say 4.5 and, and 10. Very wide range. A lot of stuff could happen. Yeah, I'm with you definitely on the ceiling. I mean, I would have said 10. I think 11 is possible if everything broke the right way. Now, that's even getting into smaller percentage chances, but I would say 10 is probably the more reasonable ceiling. But we're talking about the top, the best. And I would say, yeah, five wins. I was going to – six feels like what I would be tempted to say the floor is, but the, I think you're right. It's lower than that. There's probably only really three guaranteed wins on the schedule. And – you know, if things go really, really bad. It's, it might be hard to claw your way above that. I think that's also statistically very unlikely that this team would dip that low. Feels like the more reasonable floor would be about six, but six is all starts to get into that range of more common outcomes. That if you run this, at, you know, a ton of times, that six is going to turn up more than you want it to. So when you have that much variance, you know, two things. One, create some fear, but also create some excitement that you don't know what this team is going to do. Heading into each game, the outcomes are in doubt. And that's kind of fun because normally you look at the schedule, you're uh, for a typical Florida team and a typical SEC East, the South Carolina and Kentuckys of the world are not threatening you. And maybe even a lot of times Tennessee. That's not true this year. So how does Florida respond to that? How does this team move from week to week without a lot of let up? And how does this coaching staff manage that for the first time? Very interesting. 
Okay, so we talked about the floor and ceiling. Our next question then, how would we define success? What would be a successful? It's obviously not, if if your ceiling is the same as your bar for success, that's difficult. That's what Alabama fans experience right now, that their ceiling and what is the bar for a successful season is a championship. And anything beneath that feels disappointing. Florida fans are obviously way away from that. So what do you want to say? I'll let, I'll let you go here. Well, how would you define? Give me both like a number and also maybe like a little more, you know, language around that of, of how would it look? How would it feel? Yeah, I love this question every year because I'm going to I'm like a a broken record repeating the same thing, but it's just how I process and, and what I believe in. I'm not going to give a number because the number doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is exactly what we said about Dan Mullen and McElwain. And that is what does the style look like? The things we've talked about already, how do they handle things? What does it look like? Is it a match? Is it fit? And then most importantly, how does the team progress from week one till the end of the season on film? which never lies, do we see a better football team? Do we see a football team that doesn't progress or a football team that gets worse? And we've seen mainly a team that doesn't progress or gets worse for many of the past 10 years as being football fans here of the Gators. That would be what is successful. Can this team step in the right direction towards becoming who they want to become rather than flashes of greatness followed by complete mediocrity, which is not a progression towards championship-level football. That, to me, is going to be a success for year one, which I mentioned earlier, which is exactly what happened with Urban's year one. You had a lot of ugly. You had a lot of bad stuff. You had a lot of bad stuff from Urban, not even coaching well, moments that were too big for him, right? But things got better. Things trended up. By the end of the year, the football team was better, and entering to the next year, obviously, hit the stratosphere. So can that happen this season? And again, if you're going to say that successful seasons are going to be this many wins and this many losses, you set yourself up for unrealistic expectations that are uncontrollable. You cannot always control the outcome of a win or loss, a field goal missed here or there, a ball that bounces wrong at the end of a game. That's going to cost you one loss or one win. It's also one play. But if we can evaluate, every game's got about, you know, let's say 60 plays of offense, 60 plays of defense. If we can evaluate a thousand plus plays over a season, we get to see a real picture of how this team improves. And that is far more likely to indicate where it's going to go into the future. So that for me is what I want to see. I want to see this team progress on film. I want to see good personnel decisions. Lord knows we want to see good personnel decisions. I don't want to have to sit here anymore, Alan, (laughs) and say that it's criminal every single week for a guy like Damian Pierce not to be getting 15 carries. I don't want to have to go on here like I'm the only person in the world that has access to stats that clearly say he was the best running back in college football last year in yak, in a variety of metrics, and he got seven carries a game. I don't want to have to go on and say, how do we improve? Bench this guy. It It shouldn't be that way, right? Yes, I do a film breakdown. Yes, we like to think we're knowledgeable. But we're also just guys who have 1% of access to what's really going on. We should be instead saying, hey, I'm, I'm awesome. Way to play this guy we haven't heard of before. He looks great out there. Way to bench this guy who's struggling. I have high hopes that Napier is going to do that. Everything he says and does literally indicates that. 
that would be a major success for us coming off of this last regime where it was anything but that. And so if those things are met for me, Alan, I'm going to move my needle towards Florida could really be something very high. If we start failing one or two or three of those things, and you're going to see me come back in here next season and say, hey, I got to tell you, the evidence is trending in the wrong direction. Yes, I resonate with a lot of what you said. I, I think the progression towards you know a competent football team that is understands what it's trying to do and then is able to execute on it, I think is really significant. These guys are coaching you know, from a lack of time together. That whatever they're installing, they haven't had that much time. Everybody's new to what they're doing. So there should be obvious growth. And if there's not obvious growth, you're in trouble. Uh, and I do think Florida fans, as you said, do want an exciting brand of football. You know, that we want, we don't want three yards in a cloud of dust. Is this team capable of moving the ball, right? And improving on offense? Does the defense look cohesive and coherent? That's been long been a frustration. And I think those things, you know, moving towards, I don't want to say excellence because I don't know if that's what this team is capable of. But the other side is I will put a number on it. If this team dips below six wins, it'll be a failure. I don't care what else happens. This team is more talented. They should be getting better. They should be winning football games. I think it would be disastrous for this coaching staff to have a sub six win season. Now, again, I like to be process oriented. I'm with you on all those things, but the noise around this program and the bad vibes would just be too intense. I don't think you could call that a success, no matter how much you improved over the course of the season. It's hard for me to imagine a scenario where, we would look at a five-win team and be like, actually, they got better and we feel good about the next year. No matter how many guys got injured. Because you're basically looking at three wins that are pretty guaranteed. If you can't pick up three more, then that probably says that you're not as good of a coaching staff. Like, you don't belong. You're getting outcoached and outmanned at every level. Because there's still a lot of talent on this Florida roster. It's not Georgia-Alabama talent, but it it's still fairly talented. Oh, I would I would perhaps ask you as an Atlanta Braves fan growing up, yeah, how you would have felt about the worst to first flip around. How would I have felt about it? Yeah, would you would you have fired your entire coaching staff after the worst season, and then missed? Like, how do you know? How what would did you have no confidence that they could have been better next year? Or like, my point is like, let's say that Armageddon hits and and Florida loses six key guys. Sure. And again, these are all coin flip games. Mm-hmm. And you just happen to lose two more games than you should. So we're at four wins instead of six. At the last second, I don't know, ball bounces off the upright. Something bad happens. Close games, right? Like, I, what's you the, can what's look the at the it. I mean, there? usually I feel like I'm the one making this kind of case here, like for edge <laughs> circumstances and like let's, yeah. let's wait to withhold judgment. I, again, I guess I could draw up a really extreme case where that, I could look past those things, but to get yourself into that many coin flip situations or not have any kind of opportunities for you to pull away from teams or not be in those scenarios. I think that probably to be in that scenario probably means the coaching hasn't been very good. The execution hasn't been very good. Yes. 
is there a world of possibilities where that occurs? I guess so, but that feels really unlikely. And so I'm pretty comfortable saying that the public will consider it a failure. And in that sense, you've now created so much heat that it's going to be hard for you to climb back out of it. Oh, I think the public will definitely consider that a failure. The public is often wrong with what they consider True. to be a success or a failure. I'll give you the flip side, of course, as we know. Um, our podcast took a ton of heat for our three-year test on Dan Mullen. People accused us of being anti the program or negative Nancy's or we don't want to celebrate victories or whatever. And I felt like we kept saying the whole time, no, look, we're all in. We want to win. We're celebrating these wins. We're having a blast going to Atlanta. But we're also, when asked the question, what does this mean for the future? And we said, nothing. These things that we're doing are going to are going to cause the end of the program. We're not going to get to where we need to get to. That's not being negative. That's just examining the data. Basically, what I'd like to say is that's true on both sides. That's why you have to be careful. So there is a level of variance that's too far. Like you mentioned, if Florida wins two games, there's it's impossible. Cannot be done. When McElwain, not when McElwain, when um, Muschamp obviously lost, wait, what, what, won four games that year, I think? Yeah. We had a million injuries. It didn't matter because we lost the teams we were still better than. And that you cannot have happen, right? And as we go through the schedule walkthrough, we'll kind of talk about what does this look like. You still have to be able to beat the teams you are better than and more talented than. That's what coaching should do more often than Which not. Which are the but, teams that if you just didn't coach them at all, your team might beat. Yeah, correct. You don't get any credit for that. No. And so I think that's what we like to do in the podcast is, you know, we're not negative or positive by nature. We're trying to give you what is the most probable course and then also allow you to have some expectations for what it could or could not be and understand that's realistic. The variance is realistic, but you got to take it both ways. If Florida wins 11 games, it doesn't mean they're going to win a national title next year. And if they win five games, it doesn't mean they're not going to win a national title next year. And that, I think, is the key. There's more than just your record, which you talk about a lot. And I'm going to say that now because, again, this podcast has often been um, sort of talked about in that light of, like, we're maybe too positive on some people. We're too positive on certain players or we're too negative on these things. And, of course, humans can have their opinions, so it makes this stuff fun. But I think it's important to measure that out and say it's not easy to evaluate what's successful. I do think, though, as the season goes on, just like with every other regime, we will have a lot of metrics that will point to success or failure. And ultimately, Alan, what's the reality here? If you do all these things right, it leads to wins. That's the reality. It does lead to wins, and eventually you're winning. And that's kind of the point of why we have all these systematic even tests to evaluate coaches. So, yes, a a lot. Basically, what did we just say? A lot because... This year is not going to be easy to evaluate for a lot of reasons. Certainly just on wins and losses. That would Correct. be a foolish way to Correct, and you have to look at other stuff. It, it just has to be more than that, and we're going to do that all season long. We're going to bring you all of that stuff that perhaps you see or don't see to keep you as informed as possible as to what this actually looks like. What does this new regime bring us? Okay, I'd like to take a little gauge here. What's your excitement level entering the season? What do you presume that Gator Nation's excitement level is? My excitement is is a 10 out of 10, and we talked about this, right? It's a new season of a new show. You have, you don't know who the characters really are. You've got a couple of guys who have promise, but new script, new season. Where do the writers take this, so to speak? I can't wait for it. I'm super, super hyped. My excitement has grown as I've watched this program develop in the offseason I can't wait for this real opener against Utah. It seems like I, I couldn't think of a better time, Alan, to have a real opener like this, where obviously if you win, 
it's going to be euphoria for the fan base, like just a massive announcement of here we are. And if you lose and lose closely, it's still going to be great. And obviously, if you lose ugly, it's going to be a problem. So a lot on the line in game one, a lot to be stoked about. A quarterback we're obviously very excited about. So you've got a transcendent player, a defensive staff that I think is going to coach very fundamentally. I'm hyped about this stuff. I'm hyped for college football. I had reached that super low months back with the NIL when I was like, man, I'm just down, right? And now when it's time to play football, I get to do what I love the most, which is consume high-level football. That's what I love. It's upon us. I'm super excited. As for as for Gator Nation, as far as I can tell, it seems like people are really buying in. I think there was a low, a real low, that occurred when Napier happened to write his uh, sort of ill-timed <laughs> you know, email letter to everyone when recruiting wasn't going well. And I was getting a lot of messages about, like, dude, what's going on with your guy? Or what's happening here? I don't feel it. And now it's the opposite. It seems to have flipped that narrative so fast. You're seeing other fans talking about Florida generating buzz on the recruiting shelf, Florida being a team mentioned all the time, Florida getting national love for sort of on the rise in general as a program. And I think the fans are feeling it. So I think the Gator Nation is also, if not at a 10, at least at a 9. But they're, I think they're buying into to what Napier has for them. And again, that just puts more pressure on this this Game 1 debut for Utah, which is all the more exciting for me. Yeah, I would say I'm, I'm somewhere about an 8.5 or a 9. I think this team has real limitations. And yeah, there could be some heartache in some of these games. Uh, I'm really excited to watch it, though. And see what happens. And I would say Gator Nation is probably at a nine. It's not delirium. Like, let's say we had hired someone more, a little flashier than Napier. Uh, like, if we had learned Lincoln Riley. Lincoln Riley. Yeah, yeah. I think it would be at a 10. Oh, yeah. That's a great example. Just the, like the buzziness to get you to the actual peak of like, I could not be more ready for this season. 100%. Yeah. So, very excited. I mean, the games are sold out. A game is sold. A out. A game is sold out, but the student tickets are sold out. That's big. Yeah, um, a game is sold out. You're right, and I, I would expect that ticket sales are strong. Yeah, so I, not like peak peak, but people are. I use the word optimistic. People are hopeful about the season too, and you know a lot of question marks. There's not a lot of star power on the team other than Richardson, but I think people are ready. Yeah, I think this is, again, this is to me the educated football fans season. If you follow baseball, I love baseball. I'm a big Baltimore Orioles fan. The Orioles are like having a crazy good year given where they are in their rebuild. But if you're a true baseball fan, you follow the really bad years because it's that's, that's like the Batman Begins of true. the Batman trilogy, right? Like how did this team come to be? And if you love the sport, that is often like the most gratifying season. Is this what gets you to your championship season? It's the guys who build and pave the way for winning. And that's this season potentially. And that's really exciting. If you're a team, a fan who just wants to show up for a big game and a big event, and you want your team to win 10, 11, 12 games, this season might not be for you. But I think, again, the more you know about football, the more this season is something you want to unpack. You want to see it. You want to see the decisions that are made. You want to see how it all unfolds. And you just want to experience what this new setup looks and feels like. Okay, the only news to note, the facility opened, the long-promised, long-awaited football facility. I think we mentioned before we got a tour of it when it was still just the bones of it, no, no, none of the decor, none of the shiny parts. But 
it's an impressive facility. All of the pictures and all the video that leaks, it shows how much time and attention was put into the detail and seemed like every note of that was thought through with a lot of intentionality and it looks really cool as well. Seems to have a lot of excitement for the players, for even just the alumni who got to tour it. So it's finally done. They're moved in. I'm sure there's still a few things that they're finishing up there, but it's functional and they're in there. And, uh, you know, speaking to one of the players, they're, they could not be more excited about like kind of the newness of it and all that's going to mean for them as a team. Yeah, it's great. I got a chance to go tour the facility last week with one of our uh, our patrons, actually, the the artist known as Little Peyton. Unfortunately, I didn't bring Little Peyton with me. Oh, uh, I should have. But uh, we toured it, so I got to see it almost done. They're probably really about still a month away from like completely, completely done. Uh, and if you've been following Twitter at all, you've seen kind of the locker room battles that that go down between like Miami and Florida and what they look like, and it's it's really pretty entertaining. Uh, if you don't follow locker room stuff in general. The locker room craze is, is just kind of madness to me because most college football teams now that are in the top 15 as a program have way, way nicer locker rooms than any professional sport you can imagine times like a magnitude of five. And if you don't believe me, just Google it. Just pull up your favorite you know, Premier League soccer team, pull up your favorite NFL team and look at their lockers and then look at ours or look at other schools. It's insane what's happening but that's what's happening but the facility itself is amazing my favorite part hands down is the strength training area which is an old school field house concept you've seen the videos and photos but to stand there and be able to as a football player look and think i'm lifting for the purpose of getting on that field which is right next to me and being able to to play is, is a nice thing everything there is football i mean everything is football they have a million tvs everywhere that are only broadcasting the nfl network i mean the whole thing is a setup machine right live breathe eat sleep football it's well set up it's a really nice facility Uh, i think obviously if you're an athlete you can see the effects of that and most importantly alan the facility of course has like little bells and whistles and this is cool but i think what napier is really doing is using it as a way to capture the attention of of a serious player sort of like what nick saban does here is all the things that we can utilize to make you better and get you to where you want to go with your football ceiling and that i think is a very compelling message it's not just a bells and whistles showpiece it's extremely functional with the sole purpose of getting the maximum that the coaches can out of their players and i think that's going to resonate with a lot of guys especially the guys billy wants to recruit in general so kudos to everyone who's worked on the project. I think it turned out really well. I think you can now no longer say, obviously, that Florida is behind in facilities. And unfortunately for our first fan, Tyler Rummery, you can also say that if facilities, you used to think they were number one, two, or three, they're at least two or three notches down on the importance level now, thanks to the NIL, yeah. which, of course, has become that the almighty time. most important thing. But Florida's there now. No one can say otherwise. Now, Alan, it is time. For the annual rundown, where I'm going to walk you through each position group, and you are going to tell us everything you know about everyone, which is great. I am going to start off by saying something we say every single year, which is, A, don't believe any practice reports you read, because they don't matter, because it's not a game. Our job here on this podcast is to evaluate the games, and we will tell you what we see there. Two, what we're going to give you is sort of the overview of who's in the mix. Look, Billy Napier himself basically said, outside of maybe two positions, Everything else is like highly competitive, right? It's unknown. It's going to shuffle throughout the season, which means we don't know. 
It also means the guys that we're giving you, we're not saying are going to be the starters because we don't even care about that. Our job is not projection. Our job is to analyze on film and then make really fun statements like this guy should play here and that guy shouldn't based upon what we see. But we've seen nothing this season. So instead, we're going to walk you through these spots, talk about who we think is strong, who we think is weak, and where we think, obviously, Florida will need to improve if they want to reach their ceiling this season. All right, let's start right away on the offense, and let's start with the most important position in football, the quarterbacks. Alan, walk us through who's in the quarterback room. What do you got? Well, of course, the headliner, Anthony Richardson. We've talked a lot about him. You know, last year it was funny. We talked about who is maybe the most indispensable player, asked us to, like, rank them. I think my person was Richard Garage because we had nobody else who would equate to what we're doing. I mean, he's still very important to this team, but no one even holds a candle to Richardson. And so basically I said this is the top as he goes, the team will go. Behind him is a very mixed bag. Jack Miller, who, you know, the transfer seems fine, competent. He's injured right now. We'll miss at least two games. Uh, so then we turn to Jalen Kidna, who seems like a project. Um, probably not ready. Wasn't that high of a recruit. And one of your friends, <laughs> by friends, I mean a guy that you were impressed with, Kyle Engel, who's a walk-on, but is maybe the backup quarterback right now, question mark, with Miller injured. So you saw him at practice, actually, and we're like, wow, this guy. In a good way. I'm not being sarcastic. No, I've been, I, I loved him. I texted our group thread. So same day I went on the tour, I watched all of practice, all 90 minutes of practice. And that's a nice treat because you know we're not members of the media here. Alan and I aren't. We don't have a media pass. We don't apply for one. We like to try to stay independent. So I was able to just watch all of practice. And, you know, five minutes in, all I'm doing is watching the quarterbacks for the most part. Of course, I'll watch the other stuff, but let's face it. I love the quarterback spot. And I just, I'm looking at my friend who's there with me and I'm saying, dude, I have not seen this Ingle guy play, but I mean, he is the best quarterback out there as far as accuracy. And, and that's true. He is. He's more accurate than Richardson. Now he probably has a 30% less strong of an arm, but just absolutely completely accurate every slant route right in front right in the face mask i mean it is a thing of beauty but he's my size you know he's six feet tall 190 that's not good in college football and he's also not running a 4-4 that's not good if you're going to be that size but came away really impressed with this guy he played at st thomas aquinas he went to the state championship that's a that's a 7a school it's a big school it's not like he didn't play there he's obviously a very smart guy uh, a safe thrower. He's not going to take risky throws. Doesn't have the arm to throw late into a window. Doesn't have any of the things you would want if you're going to play at a top level. But what he does have is incredible accuracy and he's very smart. And so you saw that on display, especially in drills. And of course, lo and behold, Alan, a week later now, what comes out? This guy, Ingle, especially with Miller out, is really pushing to maybe be the backup. And that does not surprise me at all. I mean, whether it was drills or live, you know, at the end of the practices, they go live. They're going live, 11 on 11, full full send. And Ingle was moving the team up and down the field. Decisive, accurate, smart throws. I mean, he's a solid walk-on guy. Uh, not a guy, obviously, that has, again, the tools to do it at the highest level. But really, if you're thinking of a guy you want in your quarterback room, that's a guy you want in your quarterback room. Smart, gets it accurate. He's going to push your bigger-armed more talented guys because he's going to show you what can be done with ball placement, which as a coach is what you're always preaching to your guys. Hey, Richardson, that slant route, I know you think it may not matter that you hit him on the backside of his shoulder, but it means everything. That's 10 yards. It's maybe a touchdown if you put it 
in front of him on his face mask. And that's what a guy like Ingle will show you. So anyway, fun, just a little fact there in case he does become the backup, that uh, the 90 minutes of practice I watched, I can see why that is very accurate thrower. And good for him. He's toiling and toiling and toiling, and now maybe he's kind of becoming like a practice player hero or a scout team guy. But uh, either way, we'll follow it because Miller's going to be out, like you mentioned, and Kitna definitely I don't think is a guy that they would want to put into a game at all. And I think if they had to put Ingle in, I think they feel like he could move the football team enough to hold them over until you had a you know kind of a higher ceiling guy out there well hopefully we won't see him this year and that's probably more that's been discussed about kyle engel or we wanted to give him his moment yeah, right now go. because He's, good for him work hard yeah it's good best. timing on that but again this is all about richardson miller hopefully is the type of guy if richardson has to miss like six quarters or so that he could hold down the fort that the team would not implode with him correct but from what we've seen does not have the kind of ceiling that you'd want yeah, it's early for Miller. He could develop, sure. but let's face it. Sure. You could put Richardson on any team right now. And again, his ceiling, which we've said all along, is unlimited. That's what makes him such an interesting prospect. He may not reach that, but he's oozing with talent across the board, and that's the guy you want touching the ball every single time. Running backs. All right. Some Here we have a very open, yeah, very really open, unlike quarterback. Yeah. Slam dunk, shut Richardson. We got a lot of guys who are very interested. The names to know here, this one, the first one's very familiar to Florida fans, Naquan Wright, who's basically the third-string guy last year, but very dependable in both the run and the pass game. I've always really liked him. He surprises you at first because he's not the biggest guy. He's not the fastest guy, but he's super competent and gets the job done and has some flash to him. Um, If he's your starter, I think you're fine. Montreal Johnson, the transfer from Louisiana, Another guy in the same vein where I think if he's your starter, you're fine. Less wiggle, a little more straight ahead, some power, very competent, knows the system. So I, I think those are two important guys to have in the room. The The wild card here is Lorenzo Lingard, who we've talked about for years, who's never seen the field, but apparently has made moves. Again, this has to translate to him actually getting snaps, but former five-star guy transfer from Miami. I think the depth here would imply that He's going to get some looks at some point, but who knows what he does with those things. But I, Naquan Wright coming off an injury, so we'll, we'll see how this shakes out. But I would, you're definitely going to get a lot of Montreal Johnson, probably a lot of Naquan Wright. And who knows what we get from Loons or Lingard. The other guy in the room, Trevor Etienne, Travis Etienne's little brother. Decently high recruit. I'm sure they like him, but he, he's seemingly pretty clearly fourth on the depth chart. But who knows by the end of the year. But very solid group. Not the like most star-studded group, but maybe the most dependable, potentially, on offense. I, I think so. I think you can count on this group to do what needs to be done. Montreal Johnson rushed for uh, over 800 yards last year, splitting carries at Louisiana. Louisiana's not, not Florida, but that, that shows you he understands the system really well. We talked about his presence going to be so important and impactful to these running backs picking up their level of play, to play at the level of detail that Napier wants. And obviously, Wright basically would have been a five-star, right? Lingard was a five-star. And then Etienne, a four-star. You have a very talented sure. running back room there. And one that I think you mentioned can be trusted across the board. We've seen Wright as a phenomenal pass catcher. He's an excellent, excellent pass blocker. Montreal, same thing. Great pass pro guy. Lingard, wild card on that stuff. Having a lot on him. But I think this staff is going to do what a reasonable, rational staff would do, Alan. Give these guys carries early on. And if someone emerges, they are going to get a lot of carries. That's what Napier's always done. 
unlike in the past where we're doomed to see each of these guys get the ball five times, I think they're truly trying to figure out who the guy is. And if they don't have a guy, then maybe you do truly ride a hot hand, meaning you actually give that guy 12 carries in one game because he's hot. The rotation, I think, is dead. But all of these guys, I think, to your point, Alan, uh, it's a good room. Right. They trust him. And I think, yes, they. this is the modern football. They're, they're going to rotate guys. They're not going to give one guy 30 carries. No, not 30 for sure. Of or even 25 probably in a college no, football game. But 15 but would, be, would be nice. I, I think, think you just think about guy. the ratio, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever the number of carries is depending on the game, but it would, you know, for this offensive, one guy is going to get 22, the other guy would get 10. And it wouldn't be weirdly like, why is this guy getting more carries than the other guy? If it's flat, that's fine. You know, but it, I th- assume it'll make more sense than it did last year. Oh, I think it will. All Wide right. receivers. Yes. Yeah. So I'm going to give you four names here, three of which are familiar, one new guy. But I don't know who will actually be technically the starters, but assume these four guys are going to play the most. Xavier Henderson, Justin Shorter, Trent Whittemore, and then the new guy, Ricky Pearsall, the transfer from Arizona State, who everybody seems extremely high on. He picked up a small injury, but hopefully be healthy for this Utah game. He's wearing number one, which connotes a little bit of, you know, kind of star power to him already. But this is a solid group. I mean, I think we're familiar with them. They, I think they can make plays. They have talent. There's not necessarily a game breaker or, or star in the mix here. Um, outside of maybe Pearsall amongst that group. I mean, could be a star on this team. Who knows? But, uh you know, all guys who seem like they can play and are dependable. Behind them, the Jamarcus Jaquavian brothers here, you know, Weston and Frazier's who got some run last year. I think you'll see them some. Marcus Burke is a guy who played some last year. Um, yeah, I, I think it's going to be those first four who are going to see the lion's share of the snaps and – Again, you're going to rotate guys in, but that's where the production seems like it's going to come from. Yeah, this group is interesting to me because you look at Ricky Parasol, obviously, at Arizona State, and have you heard of him last year? Were you aware of what he was doing in college football? No, but Arizona State is like... No, right? Yeah. But he's doing really well. That's not to negate him. But I think it does show you at we're Florida. This is Florida, right? We have Kadarius Toney, who's tearing it up right now in Giants camp and obviously was the converted guy to the slot. And you would want to kind of just really have that going, like Bama has it going. And I think that shows you a little bit about kind of where we are, obviously. And, True. and, and what makes me a little sad about this group, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a mismatch for Richardson. Richardson is a big-armed freak athlete quarterback who is accurate and reads the field really well. If we had more receivers who are better at taking the top off, that's what you'd want to see. And we profiled that. Shorter, I love Shorter. He's one of my favorite guys on the team. He's a great guy. He works super hard. He does everything well. Great blocker. Absolutely not a vertical threat. Complete possession receiver. Henderson is a vertical threat. He's your one guy. Maybe Frazier's, but not really. You would have loved to have seen Jacob Copeland, who bad culture guy needed to go needed to leave but you love to see a burner or two like what bama has because richardson would be lethal with that so what i'm saying is this if henderson cannot play to the level we need him to play at this offense will look very different because there is not a single guy on that roster 
that an opposing team is going to fear about running by them. That's a problem. That's a big problem. It's not what you want. So what I'm saying is this is going to start to give us the kind of thinness profile. We gave you quarterback. We're talking about a walk-on, potentially being a backup at Florida. Like the guy, but let's face it, not what you're expecting because Miller's hurt, right? Wide receivers. We're talking about Henderson being one and your only true one burner. And even then, it wouldn't be elite by that category. I'm, I'm like tagging that with him because someone's got to do it. This is Florida. If you lose him, you're getting into some wonky stuff that's going to affect a team that wants to throw the ball down the field when you don't have a guy that the defense is really afraid of running down the field. So, yeah, and you can take Burke and Westman and run him down the field, but they're, nobody's rolling coverage. To that's what we're saying, and that's what you want and need. And, of course, that's exactly what Billy is going to be recruiting, much like you mentioned in the 49ers mold. It's going to happen, but this is an example of why this year is going to be fitting some pieces into places that don't necessarily fit. And I think at the slot... With with Parasol and Whittemore, uh, you know, I think that we'll be fine there, obviously. And I think Parasol is the upside. He's a great route runner. I think he can beat one-on-one combos. Shiftier guy, a guy that didn't really have that type of guy on the roster. They no, really and that's what you want because, again, if the running game is going the way it should be going in this, then your slot receiver should get a lot of one-on-ones. And that's what you want. Separation, good ball, boom. And so there, therein lies why I think he's wearing the number one jersey is he's probably going to get the matchups we want, and he's going to create problems for defenses. But in the ideal world, again, this is an outside receiver-friendly system. We don't really have a guy that teams are like, I'm worried about that guy. Yeah, this is a little more of a Kyle Trask group of receivers where if you're open at all, he's going to hit you and dependable catch guys and maybe guys who are good route runners. But you don't necessarily need the type of game breaker, although we had guys like Pitts and Tony who really made the offense go. But this will be a challenge for Richardson. You talked about ball placement. I think guys will be open. They're, these are not untalented guys. No, they're gonna. That's a great point. That's exactly where the discussion goes. They're yeah. gonna be open. Challenge yeah. for Richardson. Yeah, but yes. if you need great ball placement, can he rise to that? That's the key, and that that's what I, that's what I want to set up here for just a second because we've I've talked so much about Richardson's high ceiling. I've talked about his ability to read the field, which I think is very good. We've seen that on film. I've talked about his pocket presence, which I think is very good. I've talked about his natural feel. I think he's a very good and competent passer. The one thing that we haven't seen enough of yet, and we're going to find out, is his accuracy. In practice, I will tell you from watching two practices this year, which is not enough to get a full sample size, he's not super accurate to the level that you would want him to be at this stage. He's not Kyle Trask, right? I came on the podcast and said, look, I was at practice. This guy, Kyle Trask, is literally putting the ball in a little box every single time, and Franks is starting over him. If you watch Richardson play, even the basic passes, outs, digs, slants, they're not, the ball placement is not hitting them where you want it to hit them. It's there. It's on the body. He's not inaccurate. He's not Emory Jones. But that's a detail that matters, and that's what we're talking about. So, to your point, if they have some separation, if it's a dig across the field, is he hitting them in front, or is he hitting them in their body, or is he a little behind? We're going to see because he has not really given us enough to see that yet. So I think that's the major question mark facing this receiving core and Richardson. If he can be as accurate as a guy with his talent level could be, his arm strength is super strong. He doesn't need to be as accurate as Trask. He just needs to be in that ballpark. Then the sky's the limit. If he struggles to put the ball on people, then we're going to find out he's got a weakness he needs to work through. Yeah, it's through. limiting. And so the Correct. problem with the guy like Emery is he doesn't know where to go with the ball. So it's not like he couldn't 
put the ball where he needs to, although that was a struggle with him. It's the decision making and the platform and the so many things yes. were wrong. For Richardson, that's the bigger question mark. Now he could still struggle with any or all those things because he just have as much reps or you know experience. But yeah, this wide receiver group just kind of put a bow on it. I think it's fine. It's a lot of number twos and number threes without any real number ones in terms of guys you want at the top of your depth chart. Correct. So exciting to see, but there's kind of your in-depth, like what I'm going to be looking for. Well, it shows especially. you too that there was, when Pearsall was injured, there was like panic. Yeah. And that shows you a lot. Cause again, these guys are yeah. good. Like if Tyler, again, I'm going to quote Tyler again twice in this podcast, he's going to love this, but Tyler would be quick to tell you that on paper recruiting wise, this is a very talented class, but you just said it right. It's a lot of talented guys, but a lot of twos and threes, which is great, but they're all kind of interchangeable Yeah, and they don't necessarily fit what's happening right now. And I think I'm just perceiving a weakness for Richardson. I hope I'm way wrong. I yeah. don't think he's inaccurate. Don't get me wrong. But I think what we're saying is, yeah, if he were Trask's level of accurate, he's already an NFL quarterback. He's not there yet. We're going to see what just happens. Where he's at. Yeah. We're going to see where he's at because I know he's going to put the ball to the right guy. Now the question is, can he fit these windows in? Because these guys will be open in the system. But they're not going to have that kind of autopilot, easy college quarterback guy to throw to which we're going to have eventually. And that's going to make the quarterback's job even easier in the system. Yeah. And just the panic that Pearsall is injured. It's like this guy just joined the program a month ago and he's already irreplaceable because of the thinness of the group and his unique skill set. That's worrisome. Yeah. Okay. Not ideal. All right. So something to follow there with receivers. So basically, so far, we've got quick recap, right? Quarterbacks, we got Richardson, huge fall off. We have running backs, solid, consistent, could survive that group taking injuries. We have receivers. You could survive the injuries, but. Probably not to Pearsall. Probably not. Right? There's depth there, but not at the slot. You could put Whittemore in, but he's not the same kind of guy. Yes. So Pearsall becomes the guy you the don't want to lose. You don't want to lose him. I'm going to list Henderson because they're going to have him kind of fulfill that role as the double move vertical guy, but Pearsall's the guy. All right, O-line. Here we are this wow. far along in offense, and we haven't already talked about the O-line, which is very interesting because every year it was, what's the big question mark on the team? It's the offensive line. Walk us through this group. This might be... Mo- be the most solid group um, top to bottom, which is weird. And again, there's there's some, I think if any college team, if you have some injuries, you start to like fear some things. But going across the line, a lot of familiar names, Richard Garage, Ethan White, Kingsley Egukon, Osiris Torrance, the transfer, who might be the best guy on the team, might be the highest draft pick this next year if he fulfills his potential. And Michael Tarkin, who's, Seemingly improved, slated to play right tackle right now. And then you have Joshua Braun, who's clear the next guy up at probably like three positions. So that, I think he'll play a lot too, seemingly. Um, But yeah, that's a really solid, above average, and I think SEC quality line, you know, Made possible by the by the transfer of, of Torrance. Otherwise, I think we'd feel a lot differently about this grouping. And there's some guys that people are talking about beneath them who maybe are some solid backups, but who've never really seen the field. Uh, I think the team feels good about this group overall. That again, you know, we know most of these guys are probably fine. Um, they seem to be taken to the coaching. Like to see them on the field. So before this felt like the biggest weakness slash biggest question mark and now it feels like all right we finally settled into a competent potentially excellent line this could be the strength of the team 
I, I don't. They still have a ways to go to get there, but that that's at least on the horizon. That feels surprising to say. Yeah, I think they're a strength of the team along with running backs and then Richardson. But if you're looking at a grouping, it's running backs and O line so far that are what you would consider to be the most consistent and dependable. And it does feel weird to say that after chronicling the O line for so many years now, uh, we have, in my opinion a very competent line that we should expect good things out of. And of course we no longer have the Lance. Yes. <laughs> which is nice. So I won't have to mention that, but yeah. I'm very hopeful for this line. I think we have two, maybe three guys who are going to play in the league from this line. And that's saying a lot because we've gone many years where we have no one, barely one making any kind of impact. So that's important. That's going to be essential to how we want to play football this season. So, so far, a running football team, we mentioned O-line, we mentioned running backs. That's a good start for what we're trying to do in that regard. Yeah, that's why I think it feels like the baseline for this offense is pretty solid. Like, if you can run the ball and Richardson's a threat to run, even if you're not breaking the top off the defense now, that you know that reduces your margin of error. But it, it doesn't prevent you from being successful in moving the chains correct and that's kind of the narrative we're painting here is yeah. okay we have some good some bad how's this going to affect us and let's go to our last group now the tight ends so some familiar names keon zipper who's gotten a decent amount of playing time dante zanders who we talked a lot about in the spring game got moved back to tight end from defensive end played well there nick elksness who athletic guy um hasn't really played a lot jonathan odom is more of a blocking kind of tight end i mentioned all four there there's some incoming freshmen too but it seems like we're going to play a lot of two tight end sets so you probably see all these guys at some point um zipper is the highest rated guy by far but you know who's coming into college elkson's people were excited about when he got here i this group could i think be productive you know florida fans a little spoiled by cal pitts here who's like you know best player in the game type of person. There's no one even remotely at that level. Weirdly, it hurts that Kamori Gamble is not here. He transferred to UCF for whatever reason. They would like to have him, I'm sure. Just another guy who could play snaps and add to your depth. Uh, yeah, feels like this This is thin. If injuries occur here, that could really limit what the coaching staff wants to do. It would be interesting to see how they would respond. But overall, I think a replacement level group. Yeah, this this hurts. So we just came from strength O-line to this tight end group, and it hurts, and it hurts especially because of what Napier presumably is going to do right. with tight ends. Now, the good news is at Louisiana, you are never going to recruit even a remotely competent tight end. It's There's, there's so few of them in the country every year, right? There's just not many. Look at the recruiting rankings. There are not many guys. So you're dealing with guys who you have to, that are like these guys, but not as good. And you make it work. So and they're productive because the system allows them. The system allows them to be. So they're going to be productive. But in the ideal scenario, Napier is going to be and should be in the running for the best tight end every year because this offense is literally an NFL minicamp for as long as you're here and being an NFL tight end. Everything. Terminology, how you block, how you run routes. It is like preparation 101 for the NFL. So he should be able to recruit this position well. He needs to be able to. So we're going to fit some guys in here. There's not the upside guy that you'd like to see here. But again, blocking will be key here for the system. If the running game is working, these guys will get open. They should be competent. Replacement level is what you said. 
which I think to recap offense here, we have superstar potential in Richardson, quarterback, check. Running backs, we have very solid group. Could be a guy who emerges out of there to be really solid, but regardless, really good. Receivers are fine, upside limited. O-line, strong, potential strength of the team. Tight ends, probably the worst group, you would say, quite easily, but should be replacement level or so. Uh, especially enough depth to at least throw four bodies in a rotation. But again, you're you're limited. You're going to tip your hand depending on who's in there too. Like Odom is not going to be a guy that's going to be catching passes. Defenses will know I don't have to worry about him. That changes some of the balance of the offense. So all in all, that's the offense, Alan. What are your thoughts then on this unit from a talent perspective, being able to accomplish what Napier wants to accomplish? How do you think he's looking at this and feeling? I've got half a deck. I've got three quarters of a deck and a full deck. Kind of how is he looking at his cards? Yeah, definitely not a full deck. I I would say somewhere between half to three quarters. Like I said, a a pretty high baseline of success. There's a lot of continuity on the offense here. And we're going to turn to the defense and it's a different story. But that feels like you know what you're going to get from them in a good way. And then... If Richardson's a star, this could be a very good It could be a very productive offense. If he's fine, the offense will be fine. Um, yeah, dependable. You don't have every kind of card you might want to play, but you feel pretty good about what you're going to get, I think. Yeah, I agree. I think half to three quarters full, and that's going to be the storyline to pay attention to all season long is, is that enough to get the wins we need to get in some of these more coin flippy games? Ken Richardson, in my opinion, be enough to carry that weight. And you can imagine guys in the NFL, Michael Vick, right? Lamar Jackson at times. That's what those guys can do. They can will a team that has deficiencies to wins. And I think that's what, if I'm coaching this team, I I want Richardson to be able to do is, hey, you be the guy that puts the team on your back. This offensive structure allows you to do that. It allows you to be a playmaker and a distributor. And I might need you to be both sometimes. If you can do that, then we can reach potentially our ceiling. Okay, looking at defense, we've had quite a few changes, but I think this group's going to be great to break down here. I have a lot of uh, expectations for several of these position groups. Let's start with the defensive line. So your starters across the front, most likely Princely, never usually attempt his name, but Uman Melian. That's way wrong. We just usually call him Princely here. A guy who's played some snaps. But maybe a little bit more unknown, Gervon Dexter, Jervon Dexter, I believe, Jalen Lee, and Brenton Cox. Um, solid group, but let's take this position by position. Princely, a defensive end, backed up by Tyreek Sapp, who's a guy I think the coaching staff likes a lot, pretty high recruit. Uh, defensive tackle and nose, nose tackle. This is the place where we have some guys, but it's a huge drop-off. Jervon Dexter... Jalen Lee, I mean, everybody knows Dexter. Lee is a guy who's not played a ton. And you have big Desmond Watson probably behind him. Those are the only three guys of real note. Chris McClellan, top 100-ish guy, recruit, enrolled early. The drop-off after them is steep. And that's including a freshman and two guys who've barely played. So some very high-line talent there with Dexter and everybody else, man, I don't know. I don't. I think Watson and Lee. I think we can get some run out of them, but who knows? And then what we used to call the Buck position now, seemingly called the Jack position. Brenton Cox there 
Uh, Lloyd Summerall, who stayed in the program and seems to have made some big jumps. Another guy who's played some, uh, Antoine Power Island. There's a couple other guys who might fill into this as they move around, linebackers and other people. Um, I like the starters a lot and a few guys mixed in there. But interesting that this group is lacking immensely in depth. Now, you could just throw a ton of guys at that jack position uh, who we'll get to later. But um, interesting group here that the, the starters are, are top-notch to like could be dominant. And the rest of them, I, I, I don't know. How are you feeling? That's well said, and that's exactly right. And that's why this Florida team is so interesting. Is You, you keep hearing the top-line players Florida has could compete with anyone. But in college football, when you're fighting a season-long war, you can't have your top-level players go down and then your replacements be 10 steps below them. That's how you get eviscerated. We have a lot of question marks, as you mentioned, on the defensive line. We have some upside. I think Desmond Watson put some good stuff on film last year. We talked about it, but he was playing six, seven snaps, 10, 12 snaps a game. Can he most. play any more of that? Can he like play any more pounds, than that? You know, yeah. What if, yeah, what if Lee's out? Can he play an entire game? Can he play 30 snaps, 35 snaps like you might have to? I don't know. Dexter, obviously, the sky's the limit. I mean, this is a guy that that is oozing with potential, right? He can play end. He can play tackle. I mean, he can do everything. If he doesn't hold up, what happens? So, again, you can always play that question. If this guy gets injured, what happens? And you certainly hope it doesn't happen. The jack position, I think, is where we're the most okay. Obviously, Cox, if Cox can rein in his discipline issues with with how he plays football, which I think this staff will make him do, he can be an incredible force out there. He's often his own worst enemy because of how often he would go rogue. I don't think this staff lets him do that, and therefore I think he could be phenomenal this season playing within himself. Good reason to think there. And that gives you, as you mentioned with your D-line, I mean, Princely, Dexter, Lee Cox, that's that's disgusting. I mean, that's high-level SEC football stuff. So a group that could be phenomenal if they stay healthy and if we get injured could become a major question mark and something that you have to game plan around as a coordinator on defense to protect yourself from potentially not getting enough pressure or filling your gaps correctly uh, or et cetera. Okay, let's look at linebackers. I think without a doubt, spoiler alert here, the biggest question mark on the team. Uh, Walk me through who you have here. Well, some very, very familiar names. Guys who've been on the team since the Spurrier era, I think. Uh, Ventrell Miller and Amari Bernie. Right? They've been like forever here. Yeah, right? and it seems like Ventrell Miller is definitely going to start. They're really looking for him to for leadership and stability. Bernie's kind of a Bernie's kind of a placeholder for me here. I don't know if he'll start. I think if he does start, that's unless he takes a big leap forward. That's yeah, probably disappointing. It seems bad. Uh-huh, I agree. Um, behind him, guys with a lot of talent and very little experience. Derek Wingo, DeWan Black, Shamar James, Scooby Williams. I. I'm excited to see all of these guys play. Again, the missing name here is Hopper, who's now at Missouri. And it just kills me. I'm shaking my head and covering my face in sadness. Yeah. It literally destroys me. And that's unfortunate. But there's enough guys here, I think, that could play and play well that I'm intrigued, right? It's the biggest question mark by far outside of Miller. But there's a lot of talented dudes. And that's been true. The linebacker position for a while but getting some more guys here are maybe traditional linebackers or who we could you know 
mold into traditional linebackers. But if if Bernie and Miller are playing, I think it's fine, but it, it definitely doesn't like cover up any other part of your game. So you're hoping that a guy like the one black is just takes a huge leap and is able to start an outside linebacker. Maybe Scooby Williams or somebody like that makes a big leap, but I don't know. Interesting group here, but a lot of question marks, not a lot of like excitement necessarily about the top line guys. Yeah, that that's the thing, right? So mismatch of kind of not a top line. These guys are amazing, followed by guys behind them are terrible. It's guys behind them have talent but no experience. At the linebacker position, that's one of the hardest positions to play without experience. And that's why there's that sort of, ugh, that is not ideal. And that's why we said when Hopper left, that was such an incredible blow to this season's defense to lose a guy who was going to be an SEC, all SEC caliber linebacker. And then to just get Bernie. Yeah. If you, if you had Hopper there and you know, Bernie is one of your backups and fine, but you have a top line guy with a solid, stable, smart Miller, all of a sudden plus unit. And that's why he was such an important loss. Now to Alan's point, I think obviously if you give these guys a year of experience, then one of these guys is going to emerge behind them. They have talent. They're going to be good linebackers, but that does not make them good linebackers in game one. So a lot has been mentioned about Shamar James being a guy that they really like and is getting it and they want him to come along a little faster in his reads. That's a lot of natural linebacker talent skill. But week one is Utah. And again, you know, which one of these guys, the guy who's going to start is going to be the most stable guy in week one, not the highest ceiling guy. You'll figure that guy out probably a few weeks later. All right, let's look at our corners. Now this spot oozing with skill and talent here. Perhaps our best position group on the entire team if you're looking at ceiling guys. Yeah. Uh, and who do we have here? So it seems like one starter entrenched, Jason Marshall, who started as a freshman last year. And then the other spot I have dashes by each of these guys, Avery Helm slash Jaden Hill slash Jalen Kimber. Uh, Hill and Helm returners Kimber transfer from Georgia, played in the spring game. Uh, feels like those all those guys are probably going to play. And whoever doesn't win the job will probably still get some run, provide a little depth. But uh, it's nice to have some options there. Some guys are coming off injury, like Hill. Uh, you wanted me to write, or you wrote on the doc here, Devin Moore, freshman, who everyone's seemingly really high on. A decent recruit. who was like, question mark, is he a safety? He's a corner. This guy, staff took him as a corner. That seemed to be very high on him. But again, could be one of those like, oh, he's great, and we don't see him at all this year. So... And that might be a good thing because the guys ahead of him are playing really well. And yes, this has a lot of potential. We'll see if they can achieve that. But this is a group I'm not overly worried about no matter who wins the job because I think that means that they've beat out some really good guys. I love this group. I especially love this group with what Tony was able to put on film in Louisiana with technique. And obviously, Coy Raymond being a great recruiter. But I think Tony is gifted in teaching the secondary in general. Technique, recognition, coverages. I think he's a tactician. He's a strategist. I think these guys could be shut down. And there's a lot of them that I think, again, right leverage, right technique, right footwork, stuff that we have just seen entirely missing from our program now for several years. This could be a special group of corners. And that's important in college football. That can go a long way towards really getting you wins that maybe you wouldn't get otherwise. So keep an eye on these guys. Very talented group here. All right, Nickel, 
star, whatever yeah. you want to call this. I'd like to call this pain for years and years. Just such a painful position group for us. Just crying, pleading, please do something different. Who do we have this year? And of course, I have hope this year we're not going to get stuck doing the same thing we've yeah, done before. I mean, but who do we have here? Seemingly the top guy right now, Trevez Johnson, who Ugh. was ridiculously bad last year. Uh, Jadarius Perkins, Jordan Young, who's a guy who's you know played some, you know had some nice plays in the spring game. Uh, I I can't imagine they're going to accept the same level of play from the spot that the previous staff did. So if Johnson wins the job, I I think you would feel okay about it, and I give him another chance here under a new staff. But uh, a little bit of scars there from this unit <laughs> from the last time. I don't know. Now there's some other guys you could play some safeties here. You could play like a Kamara Wilcoxon or Kamari Wilson. Maybe just have whole new guys in this spot by the, halfway through the season. But this is again projection. I, I'm not saying I think Travis Johnson should start. He they ran him out there first team. So again, this is not necessarily what I think should happen. What I think is going to happen. Or what could happen is kind of what we're talking about here. Yeah, and I will say this, and this is important. Every single year we say this podcast is not about anointing players or removing them from their mantle. It's not about saying this guy is not good and this guy is good. It's always from a coaching perspective of let me get the best out of each player. And if I have a player who's better than someone else right now, that player should start. What do I mean by this? Trevez Johnson has always had seemingly a lot of talent. That talent has not translated on film. Napier's staff is all about what you put on film to an obsessive level, which leads me to believe, Alan, what you said, of course, could be true. If Travis Johnson wins the starting job, I am not going to go on this podcast on week one and say, what a dumb decision. I'm going to wait to see the film because guess what? He's a kid. He can be taught. And if his technique cleans up and if he starts playing to his talent level, perhaps he's excellent. But I'm going to start with this staff with full trust because, A, that's the better way to go. And, B, they have they have earned it based upon what they've done at previous stops, right? They've sent guys to the NFL from Louisiana, Allen, who have gone into the NFL and done very well right away. They know how to teach. They're not going to throw Johnson in there unless he is clearly the guy who's won the competition. And if he hasn't, then you're going to see them rotate guys so they can get game film on them to see who the guy is. So right now, put a big, fat question mark on Nickel. Because I don't think this staff or anyone truly knows yet who's got that spot sewed up. And Napier, yeah, has, sure. Napier has said as much. So yeah. we're just listing who the guys are. I obviously love Perkins. We've shown some issues with Perkins on film with potentially not getting calls correct. But I think his talent playing man especially is extremely good. Jordan Young has made big waves, especially among a lot of the players. But this will all sort itself out. For now, Alan, I will say this. It feels like we have more than one guy we can try here which is good. In years past, it was like, try anyone, take anyone. I don't care who it is, pick a body. And now I think we have a lot of bodies we could throw at this at this spot. And hopefully someone locks this down and we get a, a Chauncey Gardner guy who owns this spot and he becomes the nickel for Florida. So we'll follow that all season long. All right, let's go to safeties. A spot that had been a remarkable sore spot for so many years here at Florida is quickly turning the corner to something that could become a strength. Who do we have here? So the guys who played a lot last year, Trey Dean, back again. Rashad Torrance, who I think can play much better than he did last year. So, again, this is a group that could be really good. There's enough guys behind them that I think who are really talented and really highly rated that if those first two guys don't get it done, there's guys ready to fill their shoes 
and maybe take their spot. Donovan McMillan, I mentioned Kamari Wilcoxon, Kamari Wilson, Corey Collier. I don't know if any of these guys are any good actually in college, but there's enough kind of bullets you could fire that hopefully you could find two guys that could play this spot. And if you need to take people from other places to put there, there's enough defensive backs that it seems like it'd be silly that we didn't have a good pair of safeties, but uh, some good starting material, I think, for where the program is. For sure. And on top of that, again, I think the best position group that Tony put on film consistently during his tenure were the safeties. And I mentioned this in my defensive breakdown. The safeties on film in Louisiana were almost perfect every single game. They just never let you take the top off that defense. And the practice I watched, Alan, the safeties never let the top get taken off the defense. So I think it was already on display. And Florida is now, thankfully, rotating in the same way that we've called for on film review every single year on this podcast for six years, which somehow was not happening. Uh, using really the Ripley's concepts of Saban, where you're going to rotate a strong safety down. You're not going to have to do the stuff we've been doing before, which is asinine and stupid, chasing guys across the field, leaving ourselves open to all sorts of motion and simple plays, which which does several things. One, it keeps you much more sound in the back end. Two, it also allows you to be a lot more confusing to opposing offenses with who's going to come from where. But again, in practice in real time, Alan, the safeties did a great job keeping the top on the defense. And if that happens, that alone will probably lead to one more win. Because we know we have lost games solely because we have humongous plays at big times on busted coverages. So take these guys who are talented, put them with a coach who can get the most out of them and keep them doing their role. I think we can have higher expectations than we've had before for our safety. So I am cautiously optimistic that this could become a position of strength for us this year after so many years of pain, (laughs) which would be... Which would be great. I'm looking forward to that. All right, so that wraps it up on defense. I'm going to ask you the same question I asked you on offense. For Tony, our defensive coordinator, uh, what, in your opinion, would you say is the deck of cards he's working with? Half, three quarters, full, where is he at? I'd say almost a little higher than the offense in some sense that if the starters play to their potential, this could be a really good unit. This could be a unit that wins games for you and is excellent. There's enough talent here distributed amongst these guys that – uh, there's no real obvious deficiency and maybe other than like outside linebacker. I'm with you. I yeah. think, I think he's three quarters full. Yeah. And especially in some spots, there's a lot of guys who could play. Um, if this group gets better and improves, and some guys emerge and start to challenge for some spots, this could be a really, really good unit. So offense felt like it was static, but dependable. This feels like the opposite. Like there's a lot of names that are getting shuffled in here um, and maybe even more so that it's going to come and, but the floor and ceiling are, f- are further apart. Like we could just have some injuries here at certain positions or some guys don't emerge. The front seven could be really rough. And yeah, let's say you lose Miller and Dexter. All of a sudden you're, you're looking at a team that maybe just can't stop anybody running the ball. And that would really just create, you know, a deficiency that they're not able to overcome. And that's why it feels like the floor is pretty low as well. Yeah. Could be, could be for sure. And I think the back end, like we said, is strong, a lot of depth, great positioning. And as we mentioned, that front seven is not full yet. The deck is, the deck has some aces in there. 
and it's got a lot of eights, nines, and tens that you don't know if they're face cards, right? Yeah. What are they going to be? Unknown. Uh, so, so interesting stuff there. So I think that kind of makes up our team. We're, we're saying the offense is between half and three quarters, and the defense is probably right around three quarters, plus or minus, with a lot of variance. You get a team then that gives you that variance we gave you in the beginning. Now let's look at the last thing. We're going to call them special teams. Napier's going to call them game, game breakers changers. and changers. Yeah, game changers right there. Uh, so our, our first game changer, let's start with the most consistent one, the guy we know. Let's start with punter. Yeah, Jeremy Crawshaw, the Aussie punter, punted last year. Doesn't seem like there's any competition there. No, he was great, and they expect him to be great again this year. Um, should be a sable, solid guy. As for kicker, though. Yeah, uh, we don't really know. It seems like there's competition between Adam, I'm not sure how to say his last name, Mihalek, a walk-on, and Trace Mack, who's a freshman, pretty highly recruited kicker. Yeah, top five kicker and top five punter. So Smack's a rare guy who can do both. So hopefully whoever wins that job, they'll feel good about. That if Smack is as good as he is, but he gets, still gets beaten out because he's a little inconsistent, that means, you know, hopefully end up with a solid guy. The, the downside is that neither of those guys are very good and, you know, a ton of inconsistency. So a lot of question marks there. And the talent is there. So for the case of Malehik, and again, we might be totally butchering his last name, Adam, write to us if we are. We're sorry. He was a Division One scholarship guy. He was offered by schools. Sure. So he's not like, you know, the dentist that we once <laughs> had, if you recall, if, you're, if your Gator fandom goes back far enough for that. Uh, he's a walk-on, but he was really a Division One kicker capable guy and, and you saw that in the spring game where he's hitting kicks from 48 52 right he, he has a good leg and yeah trade. i don't feel bad about this but i don't necessarily feel as fine about it as i do cross no well, because we've had when you've had guys like mcpherson yeah right where do you go from there but in this case this is a scenario where both of these guys have talent smack has a lot of talent and i think the key now is consistency right and again caleb sergis long-term friend of the program would always tell you uh, for kickers at this level, it's between the years. They almost all have similar leg talent. It's just who can do it consistently. And I think that's what has not happened is practices are variable. One guy does it. One guy doesn't. One guy does it. One guy doesn't. And Napier said today, kicker's not a problem. Both guys are capable and solid. But one has not emerged. So that's where we are there. All right, punt returner. Who do you got here? I don't know. I saw someone suggest Xavier Henderson. I don't know if I like that or not. Um. I don't know if you want to expose a guy that you really need to that. Maybe there's a defensive back who could do this job where you have more depth. Uh, I don't have a gut. So I often have like, I want to see this guy do it. And I, I don't have a gut that tells me like Kadarius Tony not returning punts is kind of criminal. So I don't know. Anybody you want to see there? There's not an obvious one, right? That's the thing. Like who's the wiggliest guy on the roster. That's who I'd always look for. And it's hard at receiver because those are all bigger guys, and plus you don't want to, you know, lose again. Maybe there's a corner or a nickel or a guy that's. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the goal. Fun. I mean, if, yeah. if it's me, I'm looking at my roster and I'm going to have who's the wiggliest guy. Okay, can he catch? All right, how how well is he catching these balls? Can I teach him to catch them good enough to go? That that's me. That's my philosophy. We're going to find out where Napier stands again. He's calling them right game changers mm -hmm. in which case you don't think you take the Dan Mullen strategy yeah. where you basically just put a fair catch guy out there all the time so we're going to find out who he does this with who he puts there uh, we don't really know and I don't think he knows yet either I don't think there's been a guy that's emerged as like this is the guy uh, we'll find out what happens yeah. on game day same thing for kick return who do you have here yeah I nobody really um if 
and again, I haven't seen these guys do this at all. I have no idea whether they can do it. The profile of guy is like a is Lorenzo Lingard. That's, That's the profile for sure. Yeah. So if he can do it, seemingly he's a guy you could slot in there. He's not so important you couldn't lose him. Maybe Trevor Etienne or something. I, I I don't know, but that would be the guy if he's able to do it. I, I would think I would look at first just from his profile. Yeah, and a lot less important to me than punt returner. Punt returner is the, the key True. in the modern football game with most kickoffs going out of bounds anyway, but the punt returner can change a game, and that's a guy. He can also ruin you the game if he's not going to catch the football. All right, so you've got here a little a little note, um, and I'm going to ask you this question in question form. So which group do you think out of all the groups, offense and defense, total team look here, which group is the strongest? I hesitate to say this, but maybe the offensive line. Amazing. What world are we living in? I don't know. <laughs> the only other one maybe I think I you're right. look at is maybe corner. But, but corner's not as proven. Not as proven. I mean, I think you're right. If you're going to go with proven, consistent, potential NFL players, corners you could say you might have two starting corners in the NFL. That's pretty great, but they're not as proven right now as yeah. the line is. Crazy. And you have two for sure NFL guys in the line. In, in, in Garage and Torrance. Those are two for sure. And I think Ethan White will also slide into that. But all right, the O line, weakest group of the entire team. Man, I don't know. This, this one feels. So I hesitate to say it, but I'll say defensive tackle. And I like the starters a lot, but behind them is almost nothing. Guys who have not played. There's Jalen Humphreys, who's. Been on the team for three years, never really played. Chris Thomas, who's been on and off the team. Another freshman, true freshman, who's not an early enrollee. I have no idea whether even the, I mean, Jalen Lee's not like he's played a lot either. So, again, I'm optimistic about the starters, but this feels like they could have really, really used one of those grad transfers that they took last year just to give them some quality depth. And yeah, if, if, if there's a position that will wreck this team, that, that'd that be the one that stands out to me the most. Okay. I like it. I'm going to go for the strongest group. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to echo the O-line for the reasons we mentioned, uh, which is again, wild to say that, but I think it's very close as for the guys we've talked about. Right? I think the corners are solid. The running backs are solid, but I think for the reasons we mentioned NFL talent plus consistency, let's go there. And for the weakest I'm going to stick with the tight ends because you have Zipperer, and then what do you have? How many catches does Xanders have, or Elksness, or Odom? None. That's right. Barely? Zero. You have one guy who's caught passes in college football on a spot that's a feature, which you play two of them for a significant portion of your offense in 12 personnel. There are major question marks. There's not a single guy that has NFL talent, in my opinion, out of those guys. Elksness being the most talented guy potentially as a pass catcher, but that's not that's not an SEC level group in my opinion, even in the highest possible rating. But to your point, they're probably not going to ruin your team. That's kind of what you're looking at, I think, with your factor. So I'll give you something different than what Alan gave you. Okay, group that you think will look the most different by the end of the year. I'm hoping linebacker. I'm hoping these guys emerge and take over and are really dynamic and turn what is maybe a perceived weakness into a strength. I like that pick. I agree. I think that's the one that will also look the most different, has the most question marks, but also, as you mentioned, has a lot of guys that could become quite good players. All right. It is time for a live read. This time it's HelloFresh, which is America's most popular meal kit. They've been a longtime supporter of the podcast as well. 
With HelloFresh, if you're not familiar, you get farm fresh pre-proportioned ingredients that are seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. You can skip your trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's essentially why it's America's number one meal kit. Now, Alan, they sent us a box, being the good people that are from HelloFresh, of multiple meals. And instead of you and I doing it this time, we had one of our friends who is a dietitian do this for us. And she reviewed all the meals and she rated it as follows. Convenience-wise, 10 out of 10. Took all the time away from me to brainstorm meals and check what foods essentially she needed to have ready. Everything came measured out. It was very quick and easy for her to cook. The meals were super flavorful and she enjoyed the change of her normal weekly menu. Uh, Obviously, she also liked the fact that it seems like the directions made it for as few dirty dishes as possible. So it was also friendly when it came to dishwashing. The recipes are entirely customizable, which if you're a dietitian like she is, that's great. And her favorite recipe out of the box was the uh, Takara pork bowls, which she said were absolutely fantastic. If you want to try for yourself 16 free meals from HelloFresh, just simply go to HelloFresh.com slash GNFP16. Again, use that code for up to 16 free meals, which includes free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash GNFP16. So thank you, HelloFresh, for sending us these meals and keeping at least our dietitian fueled for the month of August. There you go. Okay, we talked about how we don't do a ton of predictions, but we do like to make some just for fun here. Like to do some over unders, make some predictions whether we'll have a thousand yard rusher or seven fifty yard receiver. But first, kind of a fun category for us where we're usually comically wrong about this. Candidates for breakout players on offense and defense. Sometimes we've been right. In sometimes fairness we've been to right. ourselves, and sometimes we've been comically wrong. All right, uh, breakout player on offense. You're the personnel guy, Alan, so yeah. I think you have to start here. Okay, I'll for offense, I'll go Pearsall. I knew you were going to do that. See, I gave you that. because Well, you can join guy. me. No, 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 that's you. I wanted that. Go okay, well, I think he's a guy who could be really dynamic on the team, and of the receivers and running backs could be a guy who obviously is coming from nowhere in terms of breaking out. He's had some success, but could be a lot more high profile. This doesn't seem fair for me to do this on offense, but – that is the obvious choice that everyone's going to pick, but I'm going to pick someone else because it's just, why not? Right. But in reality, if we're both picking blind, we both obviously pick, pick Ricky. And this isn't even fair because it's not really a breakout at all, but Montreal Johnson, of course, will be new to a lot of sec fans. If they're not really paying attention to roster turnover, he was not a guy in the sec, not a guy they've heard of. And therefore I'm going to take Montreal I think most people, of course, would take Ricky Parasol, especially given all the reports. But I'll take Montreal, you take Ricky, and those will be our two offensive breakout players. Okay, defensively, I'll go first here. And this is a guy who I think could be a double-digit sack guy in the right environment, and that's Princely. You're getting a chance to line up alongside Dexter and Cox. Could get a lot of just single attention there. And I like his pass rush moves. I like his intensity. He's not that big of a guy. And so I guess the question would be, can he hold up against the run? But you know, I, I like what we've seen from him so far. He looks ready for a, a bigger role. And yeah, he could have a really, really successful season. It could be a, a player that fans really take to. Yeah, that's a great pick. I think that's that's one of the best candidates for a breakout. It's hard to find another one that you love. You go to linebackers by definition, one of these guys 
perhaps becomes a breakout. Hard to figure out which one. If you go to corners, these guys are all good. I love Jaden Hill. I loved him before he got hurt. Is he a breakout even definitionally? I don't know. Sure. Kimber. If, he, if he's a starting guy all year, I think Could so. be. Kimber, obviously. Very talented guy. Uh, really like what I've seen from him so far. It's not an easy slot here for me. But I'm going to go... I'm going to go with Jaden Hill, even though I don't know if he's the same guy anymore. And I'm going to give him this pick because I loved what he was putting on film before he got hurt. I thought he was very solid. If he's not the same guy, then this pick will just not age well. But he was on film very solid. It's something I, I know something about him where the rest of these guys I'm almost picking blind without film. So with that, I'll make an informed pick of Jaden Hill as my breakout player, maybe a re-breakout player, if you will. Yeah, I mean, he barely played that one year. He played snaps, but that wasn't a very successful defense, and I don't think that anyone would consider him already having I agree. That's out. fair. That's valid. All right, let's talk about anyone who could be an All-American. Now, this is like in the best circumstances or in just their availability. Everything breaks right for them. Anyone it could be true of. Uh, I'll list a few guys here. I think Dexter and Torrance are the obvious two. Torrance is already on lists. He's the guy who has the best profile amongst people who vote for this type of thing. I think Geron Dexter, Jeron Dexter. You should specify which Torrance you're talking Sorry, about. Osiris Torrance. That's key. Different spelling of the last names, yes. but you can't see that if you're listening. Offensive exactly. lineman, mm-hmm. Osiris Torrance. There you go. Thank you. Um, already on some of these preseason All-American lists, uh, Jervon Dexter, big profile, enormous guy. Then, you know, kind of gets a little bit lower. Um Jason Marshall, if he has a ton of interceptions. Cox, if he ends up being like a, a double-digit sack guy, maybe closer to 15 sacks. Pearsall, if he goes nuts and Florida wins a lot of games. Let me ask you this. Anybody else you would put on there? Well, I don't think you mentioned Richardson there, but I would not put him on there because it's highly unlikely because there's only one slot to be an All-American quarterback, right? You have to be a first-team All-American guy. Florida's just not going to have enough record power to beat out the other quarterbacks who presumably are on better teams. College football is top-heavy this year, like it always is. There's some really talented guys. Richardson has the talent, of course, to do that. But again, I think that's a that's pretty record-dependent where a lot of these other guys, like you know Dexter and Torrance, Marshall, it's not record-dependent at all. You could be an All-American at corner and be on a team that goes 6-6. Six and six. So I think we're leaning into probability here, but it certainly he could, right? The sky's the limit. Let's say something goes amazing. I mean, if you have well. a couple, you have an injury to one guy, another guy has a down year. Yeah, yeah. Or Richardson goes all Rex Grossman like, where you just throw for a million yards and you're transcendent, and you should have won the Heisman and, and didn't kind of deal. If he goes like that, of course he could. I mean, if he so. goes nuclear, I think he could win it. Yeah, of course. So we'll put him on that list as well. But I think the most likely guy there, obviously, is Osiris Torrance. That that's the most likely guy, closely followed by some other guys like Dexter and then Marshall. Okay, a couple fun categories here. Let's start with, in the over-unders department, points per game. So last year is at 27.4 in what was a very up-and-down year. I'm going to set it at 32.5 for you here, James. Okay. I want to note that when I went through all of these to clear the stats out, that we were 100% correct last year in the over-under game. Let's go. And that is largely because we had such a good idea of how our offense and defense was going to be that we primarily took all the unders. (laughs) This year, 
I think will be harder. And you've set some difficult numbers. So 32.5 is a good number. Louisiana was at like 31.4 last year. They tend to kind of score around there. There's room for more points to be had, I think, with Napier coaching Florida. But I, I think it's going to be right at that number or so. So I'll take the under here. Yeah, I would not be surprised at all if the offense went over this. But it seems like we lack the game-breaking potential that would really push this number higher where we're going to score quicker. We score slower. There's less. There's fewer possessions, which leads to fewer overall points. So I'll take the under as well. But not like slam dunk for me. Okay, passing yards last year, uh, 2,734 from Emory Jones is going to be a player-dependent guess here, not a team total. So I'll set the over-under at 3,100. If we run a lot, can we go much over that? What's your thought? Again, Louisiana, for reference, through right around 2,900. There were a lot of passes that I've mentioned on this podcast and on film review that were left on the table because they missed them. A couple more hits there and you go over that number. doesn't take much. That being said, we spent many a year setting the number at 3,000 for passing and never got it on this very podcast. This is tough. 3,100 is very tough. This, is a, this feels right on the number. And because I want to be optimistic and I do not want to be starting off with under passing yards, which is my favorite part of football, passing the football, I am going to go with the over. I'll go the over here too. I think this is very achievable from this group. Again, I'm not expecting them to like max it out and like go nuts, so like well over 44,000 yards. But I think this is doable. And the team could be successful and this number be under. But to get to where they want to go, this is probably about where they need to end up. Okay, passing touchdowns by one player here. Last year we're at 19. I'll set the over-under at 22. Another good number from you, Louisiana, had 20. This is a matchup-based offense in the red zone. Florida will throw the ball if they get man-to-man looks, and they will run the ball if they get a light box. I think teams are going to load up the box and try to make Florida pass, which I think will give Florida more passing red zone opportunities. This number feels also right on the money, but again, I'm going to be an optimist here, and I'm going to take the over. I'm going to take the under here. I do think we'll be able to run the ball pretty effectively. And so even in the red zone, even if we're not like mashing it from the goal line, maybe from a few yards out here, our running backs breaking a few tackles. Richardson having some rushing scores himself. So I'll go under here. All right. Interceptions last year, a comical 13 from Emory plus more from others. Let's do this number at six and a half. Six and a half seems low. That's an outstanding number by one player. Caveat here is people get injured and they don't get enough attempts, then whatever. But I think if Richardson throws for 22 in this kind of offense, maybe where he's at in his development, he's still more likely to have more interceptions than that. I'm going to take the over here. I'll take the over here as well. I think his aggressiveness will lead to a few more than he probably would want. I don't think he approaches anywhere close to 13. That's really bad. But I don't think he's going to be at like one or two. He's not going to have some statistically you know, clean year throwing the ball. So that feels about right. I mean, how high would you go on this? Like where the over under would make me go under Mm -hmm. Uh, 10. Okay. Yeah. 
It feels like two to one is going to be a good year for him this year. Again, keep in mind that as much as I love Richardson and, and you do too, he's only played like four football games. That's true. So 10 interceptions in your first real campaign is, is almost expected. And if you're Peyton Manning, you'd throw like 25 and chalk it up to a learning year. So there you go. Yeah. All right. We like to put this category next one. Do we have a thousand yard rusher? Mostly we just laugh and say no. One year, I think we maybe wanted to pick it, but we didn't. I'm going to set the number at 850. Last year, Emory had about 760. Pierce had 574. Louisiana had two guys go over 800. Yeah, I mean, that's what's interesting, right? So two different guys over 800 for Louisiana. One of them, Montreal's on this very roster. I do not think we have a 1,000-yard rusher, first of all. But for the over-under game of 850, that is a good number. I think it's still – I think those guys are too close to each other to have one really emerge for that many yards. So I'm going to take the under. I'll take the under as well. I think a lot of guys are going to get yardage, including Richardson. I mean, Napier said something about having – we're going to have to use him running the ball. He's too good at it. So I think that – pushes the number for any one running back to be that high. I would love it if we had a guy over 850. I think that'd be great. Yeah, unlike last year when Pierce did everything he could to get more than 574 but just didn't get enough carries because for whatever reason he wasn't worthy, according to the former head coach who will not be named. But we wish Pierce the best in Houston where he seems to be tearing it up and getting all the carries he deserves. So good for him. Okay. A 750-yard receiver. Last year, Copeland... Had 642. Louisiana had two below 500. Let me set this number at 650. It's a good number. 650 is a good number. If Copeland had 642 last year with that dumpster fire in offense we had, it feels like somebody should be able to go over 650, especially Allen, when most of our sets are going to feature only two or three receivers. There's not a lot of guys to compete with. But then again, I just don't know with this group how it's going to shake out. But 650, you're right on my number. You're right on it. And since I took 3,500, I mean, 3,100 as my passing, I have to stay logically consistent here and assume that someone is able to get enough targets to squeak that out. I'm going to take the over. Hmm. I'm going to go under slightly here. I think that there's going to be several guys who are right around this. And again, I would love for someone to go over this, but I, yeah, I don't know. I just have a feeling that we're we're not going to see any one guy dominate here. Even though less guys out in routes would lead to more yardage, that is sensible thinking. But I'll go, I'll go under reluctantly. Okay, let's look at the defense. We tend to try to look at it holistically, kind of a made up stat that we'll kind of cobble together. Is the defense in the top 30 is what we asked last year. So in 2021, we were 44th in points per game, terrible versus the run, top 20 is versus the pass. Uh, in 2020, way worse, 80th. Uh, 2019, top 25 in most categories, 7th in points allowed. So let's stick to this number, 30. Can the defense climb into like the top 30 defenses in college football? I think absolutely. I, I, I am drinking all the Kool-Aid that Patrick Tony offers up. I think he's a great teacher of the game. I think Louisiana's defense was super sound. I think he's a game theorist. 
I think he understands what's going on, and I think he has talent, enough talent to get this done. I also think that although Florida is facing a lot of good football teams this year, they're not facing a lot of great offenses, per se. Some, yes, but not a lot. So I think this number is definitely achievable. Even as bad as our team was last year, Alan, we actually finished, again, decently well against the pass with almost no coaching, in my opinion. So this feels achievable. I'm going to take what I consider to be the over beating 30 here or the under. I don't know. I'm going to take under, I guess, in this regard, which is really a positive performance level. We'll take the under. They're going to go under 30. Yeah, it could be, under yeah. could be positive. It under be Either way, is we're going under. Under 30. Yeah. Okay. I'll join you there. This feels very doable. It feels like if we just shore up the discipline issues and some of the alignment problems, that there's talent enough that this should be, I don't want to say easy, but very doable. Um, I think it would be disappointing to this unit if they were... I would be disappointed too. Farther away from this, I would be. This would be the most disappointing one we don't make, in my opinion. If we don't make it, I think this is the one we we should make. Okay, number of sacks by one player last year. Cox had eight. I'm going to set the number at nine and a half. I'm going to take the over here. Uh, You know, wow. Louisiana's defensive scheme is excellent. Obviously, again, we've chronicled it on on the channel. You can see it visually, but they use simulated blitzes they use creepers uh they they do a lot of stuff that i think is going to allow your elite pass rushers to get into the backfield i think what helps this number alan is we are not going to be rotating a ton of pass rushers because we're thin as you've already chronicled up front which gives these guys more chances to get sacks so i'm going to take the over here at nine and a half we were close last year anyway and yeah, i'm going to join I think you this year we can hit it yeah, I think it could be done by either one of the guys we talked about. I think Cox especially, if he's got his mind right, if some of the stuff he was showing at the end of last year you know, kind of continues, he's definitely capable of that. Um, I don't know. I, he worries me a little bit in terms of his, like, can he keep his head on straight for 12 games? But if he can, this number could be, you could push that even higher. He's, he's that capable. And his aggressiveness rushing the passer could lead to a lot of, you know, counting stats for him. Um, and we'll see, you know, can the defensive tackles keep him clean? That remains to be seen. That could really inhibit this number. But I like it from this vantage point. Okay. If you're going to pick an MVP of this team, the obvious answer is Richardson. Yeah, it's easy. I mean, I already typed it in. Yes. It's, it's simple, and I don't even need to expound upon it anymore because I already have. Some years it's easy like this. Generally, it's going to be your quarterback. It should be your quarterback. But I will give examples of Alabama's football teams for scenarios when that's not true, right? Plenty of times they won a national title, Allen, and the quarterback was not the most valuable player on the team. This year's Florida team, though, this is Anthony Richardson's team. He would have to be the MVP if we're even handing out this award at the end of the year, it means we're at least somewhat happy at some level. And therefore, it's got to go to Richardson. All right, give me another person. Let's say we just say take him off the table. He's probably the MVP, but like a non-Richardson MVP. I'm silent because it's really hard to think of someone who would have that much sway over what's happening. But, you know, if you look in the NFL at players who can often make a huge difference, 
a guy by the name of uh, Vince Wilfork comes to mind, right? And he was an absolute game-changing player on defense. And so I'll take Jervon Dexter as an MVP. Um, he's not Wilfork, but I wanted to use that as an example of an interior lineman who changed a football game for his defense. Dexter could be that guy, and he's one of the most talented players on our team. So I'll go Dexter as the, the second guy. Who would you take? Yeah, this is really interesting. Um, that's a good pick. I, I think a guy who might be really important to us internally, even if the numbers or the high in profile doesn't line up, is Ventrell Miller. I knew but, you were going to say that. Um, I, I'll, I'll maybe say Naquan Wright as well. I think he could be a guy who leads the team. In, and there's a, there's a world out here where he leads the team in rushing and receiving. There's a world out there. That's true. That world exists. So I'll, I'll put him down there too. I like that. All right, let's make a turn towards recruiting. Last time we spoke about recruiting, the sky was falling. People were freaking out. The world was over. And we had said several things like, look, where there's smoke, there's fire. We like the direction it's going. Let this stuff settle out. We don't know yet. We'll see where the dust settles, blah, 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 blah. Well, the dust has settled to a certain degree. We still have more recruiting to go, of course, until December. The current update on UF's recruiting class is that we have 18 players committed. I mean, sorry, we have 20 uh, players committed. We have 18 of them who are four stars. 18 four stars. Zero are in the top 30. Two are in the top 30 to 100. And 11 are ranked between 101 and 300. That, Allen is more top 300 players since Urban. That gives us a total of 13 uh, top 300 players. It's the most four stars ever. At 18, no coach at UF has ever had more than that, four-star-wise. And it's the best average player rating we've had since Urban's 2010 class, which was sensational. And 16 players were from Florida. We had mentioned last time the biggest upside I saw from Napier's recruiting strategy was he is recruiting guys who are going to be defending their home turf. And in a world of mercenary soldiers and kind of pay for play guys these guys are repping their hometowns i like the idea that they it. will care more and play harder this certainly seems like alan a significant trending up above the previous baseline and i want to set the stage here for a second before i before we kind of give it a tier rating that's important but we talk a lot in the three-year test about outperforming your baseline well urban obviously sets the standard for what you can achieve at uf it's a different world now, but still certainly achievable. The previous coaches, the previous regimes of Muschamp, McElwain, and Mullen set the modern past three coaches. And right now, trend-wise, Napier's already passing them without having ever even coached a game. That's good. That's what you want to see on your relative trend. That's a, that's a positive check in the right direction. It's not enough yet. We'll talk about that, but certainly... You should feel good about the direction of Florida's recruiting, the buzz it's making on the trail, and the players we have pulled in thus far. How do you feel so far about the change in narrative with Florida's recruiting? I really like it, I, and I I love what you said about the the local guys, local ish guys. I mean that there's something known as a blue chip ratio, which is a very simple like how many four or five stars do you have? Is it over fifty percent? Is that kind of an interesting benchmark? I mean, some the top schools are way higher. I mean, Alabama is like ninety percent or something. This is interesting. Like, he hasn't closed the deal on the top, top guys, but everybody he's taken for the most part 
is a four star and a relatively high four star too in the top 300 there. And, and you know, it was not done. Maybe there's also a possibility one of the guys at the bottom of the class sees his way out. Maybe this is even higher. There's some big fish out there. Floor is in on Cormani McLean, which is like a top five recruit at corner. So this class could look significantly better. Now, again, we're a long way away from December. But at this point, checking in, it's way higher than we're relative to where like Mullen and McElwain were. Like positioning wise, not even just ranking, but four star blue chip ratio kinds of things. So it's interesting. It's a really, really good class without being a superstar laden top class. If you look at the composite, the two four seven, there's it's interesting how the accounting is done. There's some teams with higher rated players and a lot lower rated players. And Florida's slots in somewhere in between there. Missing some of the top end, but also doesn't have like very many three stars. Even some teams above them, you would think, oh, would they ever take a three star? You know, it's the way it's shaken out for Florida so far. So interesting results thus far. Yeah, very different from the previous regimes who were taking on average between eight and nine three stars. Shows you the difference in that bottom level player that you have there. And then obviously in the top side, Florida had really been averaging like a half of a top 30 player. And so if, if Napier lands one, he'll be right in historical context there, which would mean he will have significantly upgraded the overall talent for this recruiting class compared to his previous regime. Notre Dame right now is third in the recruiting rankings. They have one five-star, 18 four-stars, and I think two or three three-stars. Almost exactly what Florida has. If you imagine we sign, as you mentioned, the top corner that's out there. The difference is Notre Dame's four-stars are slightly higher. Not by much, maybe two players. But that goes to show you Florida's like 10th or 12th, depending on where you look at. They're not far from third. They're not far. But again, this is the highest rated average player class by a significant margin since urban so this is you know if you the tiers is interesting because if i was doing some math on this i think it'd be really hard for florida to climb any higher than five if you just look at the the number that were result if we add some expected players and again who knows how many players they take i i didn't put a really high number of of recruits that's part of it the more recruits you have the higher your composite score is even if your average player rating is higher so without taking a ton of recruits, it seems like Florida would probably best case set around like top five, which is, I think, what you would want to aim at if you're Billy Napier in your first year. That you're not having built a machine like Alabama and Georgia, but that you're getting competitive there. So five or six, but that, you know, five or six is relative depending on what year you're looking at that number. That's why the tier system is helpful to think about it from another lens, not just relative to the people around you, but what kind of player are you bringing in? Yeah, and that tier system is really there to identify, like, what do you need to win a national title, which is the same thing the blue chip ratio does. I think where the blue chip ratio falls short is a year like this one for Florida. Right now, Florida is, like, second or third best in blue chip ratio, which is great, by the way. It's, like, we're, like, 90% or 89%. Alabama's, like, 94 or 5, whatever crazy number it is. But... Our entire roster, basically, are four stars or better, right? Which is awesome. You need that. But it doesn't flush out that next level, which most national championship teams do have a significant portion of top 30s on their team. And so, again, as the annual refresh on the tier system, a tier one, Bama, Georgia, etc., are going to have two or more top 30-ish players. Urban in 2010 had four of these guys, right? You're going to have six or more between 30 and 100 
And then overall, you're going to have about 13 or so top 300 players. That's a tier one recruiting class, top heavy, just heavy in general with great players. Tier two is one top 30, four or so 30 to 100, and 11 or so top 300. And then tier three, which Florida's tended to be in between, is generally zero, maybe one every two years, you get a top 30, two 30 to 100, and then eight overall top 100. So in 2021, Mullen's last class, we had 22 commits. We had one top 30, two guys between 30 and 100, six between 101 and 300. We finished 13th nationally, fifth in the SEC, but what matters most to us is we were tier 2.5. So we're kind of like outside what you need. You want to be tier two or better. And then Napier, of course, first little transition class, really, where we had almost no time. We had 17 commits. We had two between 30 and 100, five between 101 and 300. So seven total top 300 guys. Allen, 19th nationally, ninth in the SEC, only five players from Florida. That's a tier four class. Now what do we see? Well, we mentioned the numbers here already. Uh, that's going to put Florida on the tier system in a tier three overall because it's missing the top guy. But I want to illustrate the difference here. And this class is not done yet. That's important. Top 300 level scenario, Florida right now is almost in tier one, right? They're tier one, tier two, and top 300. And top 100, they're still going to be underneath that. So essentially, Florida's on pace if they sign the five-star you mentioned or someone else is a surprise. Florida's going to slide themselves right into that tier two status, which will be the first time we've been in a tier two status since we've created the tier system. And that is what you need to win a national title. You need to be at least tier two. So with months remaining, this class could finish tier two, which would be what you needed. Even in the three-year test, we've talked a lot about it. The best coaches tend to get that result. He's trending towards getting that result. And if not, he'd be very close to where you would think the next year, perhaps he does get that. So the recruiting update essentially is great things have happened. It seems like Florida is making in waves with all sorts of people. And perhaps the best news is this, Alan. We mentioned the NIL when Scott Strickland was on this episode is probably going to lead to a faster understanding and recognition of who the best coaches are because these other systems are going to crumble very fast because it's more of a free market, even though it's a messed up market. And there's already been some ruminations of other programs having some issues with their pay-for-play players or whatever we want to call them, not necessarily loving the way things are going down early on. And some of them have been rumored to come back to Florida and say, hey, we'd love to be a part of your recruiting class now in Napier and staff. Or some of them are saying, no, thank you. We've kind of seen what you're like. We're not about it. And for others, yeah, good reason. We'll bring you back in. But all that to say, Alan, it's almost impossible if you're an opposing fan to dismiss what Florida is doing on the recruiting trail now as something other than concerning because they are awakening on the recruiting trail. And that is very positive for Florida fans. We'll see if they can get into that top, top level. All right, Alan, it is time for the annual schedule walkthrough. As we come towards the end of this delicious podcast, we teased this last time. We said there's a lot of coin flips on this. We are now going to walk through it, and we are going to pick a record. We are not going to pick the opening game Utah. We'll save that for next week. That is, of course, next Saturday, 7 o'clock on ESPN. We're not going to pick that one. We're going to start with Kentucky. The reason we're going to start with Kentucky is we're going to learn more each week about who's healthy, who's injured, and whatever. And obviously, we want to save for you as well that Utah game as sort of an opening 
pick treat. So we'll go the rest of these sort of blind. We'll get a total record and see where we're at. So let's start with Kentucky. That game is going to be at home a couple Saturdays. Well, three Saturdays from now. Also a night game. Kentucky, of course, picked, finished second in the SEC East. Their schedule is very, very favorable. If you want to look that up, very easy schedule. This game will be on the road and a big one for them. What do you have, Florida versus Kentucky? Man, this feels incredibly intriguing, but I kind of like Florida in this game. I think they're going to be tested coming from week one as long as they're, Florida doesn't get like just demoralized by Utah. I I like Florida in this game. Now, like, it's very much could be a loss, and this Kentucky team is no joke, but at least right now I feel good about it. You're going Florida win. Florida win. I'm also going to go Florida win. It's perhaps that I just do not believe in this Kentucky team. I don't believe in Will Levis. I, I think they're still pedestrian. Florida's still more talented than this team. On paper, they will be on recruiting composite. It's a home game at night. If Florida beats Utah, how hyped is this stadium going to be? If they play close with Utah, this stadium will still be hyped. The only narrative where this is really a downer for Florida is if we just get handled by Utah, then, you, then you're in trouble. Uh, but right now, I don't think that's going to be the case in the Utah game. I'm going to take Florida here to beat Kentucky, uh, which, again, will surprise some people. But I think I think Kentucky's flying too high on the national radar. All right. The next week at home, USF. Uh, I mean, a win here. USF hasn't shown me anything that would prevent me from picking Florida in this game. Yeah, win for me as well. Then the big one, Ooh. a road trip I will be on this year, my favorite SEC road trip. At Tennessee, my favorite SEC team outside of Florida. They're a rival that I've just come to love. I love how much their fans love their team, and they are feeling themselves this year. I have to be there for this. Feeling it. This is going to be a big one, potentially a huge one, if Florida can come in there with a good record. What do you have here? Wow, this feels really spicy. But I think Florida's going to win this game and just crush souls. It'll be delicious. I love it. I got to tell you, I think Florida is going to win this game as well. And this is not a homer pick. I love Tennessee's offense. I've said it a million times. Someone who's going to be a a great antidote to that is Patrick Tony. That offense relies heavily on confusing defenses and having them blow assignments and not being talented enough to run with receivers. Florida is more talented than the offense Tennessee is going to bring at them. And I think because they are capable of playing sound coverages and understanding how to handle an offense that spreads you all the way sideline to sideline, they can limit Tennessee's opportunities in this game and make this game a more manageable offensive game. I think when it comes down to that, Florida, again, is equally, if not more talented than Tennessee, Allen. Uh, and I think this is a game Florida can win. It's a coin flip for sure. But I'm going to put this heavily on what I've seen on film with how Louisiana teams handle the back end on defense. That's a that's a straight-up style pick right there. Okay, we then go home October 1st against Eastern Washington, where I presume you're going to pick a win. Of course. I am as well. And then we have Missouri, your team that you always love and yeah. are worried to pick against. We have well, a game against Missouri at home. And it again, this is a Missouri team that Florida lost to last year. That's correct. Um, and it, especially when it's in Missouri, I, I really fear this coming at this point in the, in the season, it's less scary coming off that Eastern Washington game. So I think this will be a win at home. I don't know what to think of Missouri this year in general. Like, what are they going to be like? I tend to just totally disrespect the direction that they're going, but that's not the right way to view this thing. 
so many of these games are coin flips and so many of these games at this stage early on are not informed by film. And that's right. why this is kind of fun. Like I'm going to feel very differently when I start to watch these teams on film and each week will we'll be much better. In fact, we're, we tend to be very good at predicting Florida. Once we're looking at it that way, this is just totally blind here. It's a lot of home games that it's hard to pick against your team at home. When I think you got a guy like Napier who really values that. And sometimes and it feels like a schedule loss. This feels like this. Yeah. feels more manageable. I, this does feel very manageable. And I'm going to take Florida here in a win. That brings us to LSU. Mm. Maybe the most coin flippy for me right now. LSU at home, Saturday, October 15th, bringing in Brian Kelly. There's a rumor here that the very own Gator Nation Full Podcast is going to have a meet and greet that weekend. Whoa. Stay tuned for details here in town. You can show up and hang out with us. What do you have in this man, one? Man, breaking news there. Breaking news. Dropped it right here near the end. We'll have we'll more formally cover this as the uh, as the weeks go on. This feels crazy um, considering how I feel about Florida and <laughs> the fact that I'm about to pick this many wins in a row, but I'm going to go win. I, I just don't have a feel, good feeling for how this LSU team is going to be right now, and they feel like a little bit more uneven than Florida. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's not crazy at all. I mean, LSU has a lot of... The problem with Florida's schedule is there's just a lot of coin flips. It's right. not like individually you're like, juggernaut, we're going to lose. It's like, yeah, I mean, you could find a neat... Sure, I mean, I think Florida could very well be a better team than LSU is. And what do you think about Brian Kelly and how he's going to fit in this system and what he's doing in year one? And again, it's a home game. These are too many home games. You have to pick your team at home. It's a huge advantage in college football. It's a great home schedule this year. I'm taking Florida. All right, so far we have Florida undefeated. Though, we're not picking Utah. <laughs> well, yeah, post-Utah. That's there. an important thing. We're not picking Utah. All right, now we head in an off week, and then we head into the Georgia game, which is still in Jacksonville, despite Kirby Smart's whining about it, not wanting to be there. What do you got here? This is probably one of the more easy ones, at least to project from this point. I can't pick anything other than a loss here, just the state of the programs. Now, when we get close, maybe I feel a little more frisky about it, especially Florida is playing as well as we're maybe predicting them to in the schedule walkthrough. But right now I can't reasonably pick Florida to win. Yeah. I'm taking a loss there as well. All right. Then we go on the road against Texas A&M the very next week. Yeah. And I don't feel like Florida is out of this game. This could be a good solid A&M team, but I don't, they're not a juggernaut, but I think at this point, just record wise, I'm Florida has to come up with like three or four losses probably just in terms of like the math outcome so i have to pick a loss here there you go i'm also picking a loss here as well and then we play south carolina the very next week at home yeah home game south carolina i think will be an improved team this is a team definitely could lose to uh but i'll I'll take florida winning it yeah i think south carolina is not quite ready yet again the teams that are much more dangerous kentucky tennessee etc but so much of this is going to come down to the health of each each of these teams as we get deeper into the schedule. All right, then we have the game at Vanderbilt, where, of course, your boy Coach Lee is letting the world know that Vanderbilt's going to become the best, but maybe not this year. What do you got here? Um, this could be fun, maybe depending on how Vanderbilt's playing, potentially, but, I mean, really, I obviously have to pick Florida to win. This feels like a game that Napier should always be winning right. with kind of how he systemizes and does things. I wouldn't expect letdown games of that nature here. Uh, we're going to find out, but I wouldn't expect that. And then we finish with a game that normally is obviously a highlight of the year. Hard to get an idea of what's going on with Florida state. You may have seen the reports this week of them practicing, uh, you know, kicking, 
catching punt returns with a water gun being shot in their face. That made a lot of interesting, fun stuff. They spelled their official letter wrong, leaving out an I. It just seems like they're trending in the worst possible direction, but this game is on the schedule. It is at Florida State. It will be a night game on ABC. On a Friday night. On a Friday night, which is awful, and I hate it. It bothers me. It needs to be on Saturday. What is this? What's going on? It's Florida, Florida State. But a Friday night game in Tallahassee. What do you got here? Man, uh, not having the Utah game to pick feels like it's it's screwing up my math in my head. But I'll I'll go I'll go win here just because I if you're looking at current trajectories from this date in August, I think I have to say Florida win. Again, same thing. Florida's in a better position than Florida State is, so this is a win for me as well. So right now we have two losses. Which means it seems like we're both trending to pick a loss at Utah. Otherwise, we're really drinking some JT Raymond-like Kool-Aid here and picking a lot of wins, which I've only done one year before, and that year did not turn out well. Um, This year is, you know, this is interesting. Our schedule is hard because there's a lot of coin flips, but it's also something where you don't have Murderer's Row. It's a weakened LSU team. Kentucky, you can think what you want for them. They're still not a super talented football team and Tennessee is the same thing. They're not a super talented football team. You can find a lot of narratives where these are winnable games, but they're also losable games. And that's why I think this year's walkthrough is so difficult. You might be thinking, Oh my gosh, these guys are crazy. How could they possibly be picking this? You know, the Vegas over under is going to be right at six and a half. What are they doing? Picking all these wins? Well, I think it's a lot of home games. Mm-hmm. That's where I'm, if you flip this stuff around and you're playing, Kentucky away Tennessee is away obviously but if there's more away games LSU's away then I'm gonna bump these losses by by two but there's just so many home games early where if you start winning a few of these the momentum strongly goes in your favor now I will say the reverse is true as well Alan if we lose to Utah and Kentucky and then head to Tennessee as a one and two football team that's looking like a big fat L if Tennessee is playing well so there's just a lot that goes totally and I mean I think my my projections would lead me towards like between like eight or nine wins, but looking at the schedule and the way it falls, like it, you know, I don't hate any of my picks. Sometimes I'm like, man, I regret saying that one out loud. The one that on retrospect, like looking back is maybe the Tennessee one feels like if they're as good as they think they will be that, that probably trends more towards a loss. So that was just a little bit of a gut feeling there, but who knows? Yeah, so what's fun about this is I've been telling all of my friends consistently that I'm picking Florida to go 8-4 and four this year. And I've set it up so that I cannot make them go 8-4. and four. Yeah. Uh, but I think that when it's, and this is why I'm saying this, I think that when I go through each game each week and I make the picks each week, it's probably it probably is going to wind up being, I'll probably pick four losses each week. That's not on purpose, just because I think that's what's going to happen. But right. as you do the walkthrough... My natural SEC East fandom kicks in, and I'm just like, we're not losing to Kentucky at home. Like, I don't care if it's a coin flip. We're not going to lose at home to Kentucky. And then again, for Tennessee, that was a very specified pick. I do think that our style of defense and how well he coaches it is what you need to beat a Tennessee team. That's really important to beating them. I think we have what it takes there. I think if we had a different staff, I'd pick a loss every day of the week. I love that offense. And then things get wild. So, What am I saying with this really, really fun year that I think this shapes it to be with a lot of unknowns and a lot of coin flips and a lot of shifting narratives, depending on how all of these teams begin to perform and and ahead of time, picking how many wins or losses a team like Florida is going to have is 
really a fool's errand, but one that is fun. And, you know, for looking at our relative predictions here about like yardage, defensive ranking, if Florida's in the top 30 defensively and is scoring at the rate that we predict them to around 30 points a game, that's going to lead to a lot of victories. Well, you've got it at 10 victories right now. So that's that's quite well, a few indeed. Maybe not. Maybe not. Well, I think how many how many did we just pick? There's twelve there? games. Yeah. We picked we picked eleven of them, but you've you can only pick one more loss. You have to be at No, oh, I guess you're right. Look at that. Nine. You're at nine wins. Nine Question wins is currently. will Allen go to ten? That's right. That's right. I projected you to just pick a win against Utah. But you've well, already we'll tipped your hand and said you're not going to do that. I don't know. We'll see. You already said you had to have three losses. Well, maybe I'll change my mind. <laughs> you do have the right to change your mind. That's correct. All right. So Allen with nine wins. James currently with nine wins. Remains to be seen whether that moves to 10 next week when we pick Utah. I've already tipped my hand and said I've, I've been saying eight and four. So I can't take one away. So I'm already one over. So <laughs> there's that for you. Okay. A few things here for week zero. Weirdly, the most high-profile game is one that's happening in Ireland. Nebraska versus Northwestern in Dublin, Ireland. Very strange. It's happening at 1230. Nebraska's favored by 13. I've been to Dublin. I've been to the Guinness factory there and sipped on a variety of Guinness beverages. I don't know how much Nebraska is going to drink relative to Northwestern, but it feels like Northwestern is probably not going to be indulging <laughs> in such things. Uh, Scott Frost has to win this game. That's the bottom line. He, 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 has, he just has to. I'm sure he hates the fact he's traveling across totally. the ocean to go play this game. It is huge game for him, a die-on-the-hill game. They have been so hard luck, and 13 seems like a big point spread especially when you're facing a KG Northwestern team. I I would not bet any week zero games. I'm going to start right now with that, but I have to bet this one. And Scott Frost was a guy I really thought could have gotten done in a warm weather school in a friendly recruiting state that's not Nebraska. I'm going to hedge and place one more bet on Scott here, and I'm going to bet him to cover, but everything in me tells me to take Northwestern there. Yeah, I'm going to go Northwestern. That's if a I, smart pick. If I was picking straight up, I think I would pick Nebraska. Uh, for all the reasons you said, the pressure on this game, the how important it is to the success and overall health of this Nebraska program, if they're going to stay with Scott Frost. But, um, yeah, it feels like it's going to be close. All right, we got Wyoming versus Illinois on the next one. Yeah, Wyoming versus Illinois. Illinois favored by 10. What do you think? I'm going to go Wyoming. I don't trust Illinois. Why would I trust Illinois? I don't know. I don't do it. I'm taking I'm taking Wyoming. <laughs> uh, I'll go Illinois. Okay, I love it. We're just picking opposite. This is a fun Let's new trend it. here. Okay. All right, there's no line in this game, but... <laughs> but it must be picked. Duquesne versus FSU. Got the balls to pick Duquesne? I really want to pick Duquesne. Look, the thing is, it's not out of the question. <laughs> I think it is out of the question. Is it? Duquesne? I mean, this is Florida State we're talking they about here. They did lose to Jacksonville State. Uh, yeah, or somebody like it's that. not out of the question. I mean, I'm going to take Florida State, but I put it on here because it's not out of the question. I'm going to take. I'm taking Florida okay, State. Okay, I'll, I'll pick them as well. All right, all right. Nevada, Nevada, Nevada. I learned this once at a time. I don't yeah, remember. I don't recall either. Favored right. by nine versus New Mexico State. 
New Mexico State being on here, of course, because podcast history for you, the very mm-hmm. first episode we ever did was Florida versus New Mexico State, where we interviewed their play-by-play guy. Indeed. Uh, so give them a little ode here to week zero. This is good news for New Mexico State. They're one of the worst teams in Division One football, and to only be an underdog by nine, they are trending up. We chronicled this last year. Nine points is tricky, though. Are they ready? Nevada, generally a good team consistently. I'm going to take... I'm going to take Nevada. Let's do it. I'll join you there. Okay, Vandy. Here we go. SEC play. Favored by seven versus Hawaii. Versus Hawaii. I watched the Mente Teo <laughs> untold story, by yeah. the way. Have you seen it? No. Would you recommend it? It is wild. Oh, yeah. I would definitely recommend it. It's at, First of all, like... It seems like when you're watching this little documentary that Mantel Teo is like the nicest person ever. And you're trying to figure out like <laughs> a lot of things. But anyway, they say Hawaii all the time. So I'm glad Hawaii. we get to say it here. But Vandy favored by seven. Are they going to be enjoying the atmosphere too much here? I, mean, I don't really. <laughs> Vandy? This is, is this Vandy, is a hard game. Is Vandy any better than Hawaii? Hawaii is. No. So Hawaii basically. Well, I'll let you pick, then I'll tell you what I'm about to I say. Mean, I mean, I that's my whole point. I was going to set the stage for this is This is, I think, the hardest pick of all of these picks by far. This pick is very hard. I mean, this is this just seems tough. But you know what? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump on the Clark train for week one, and I'm going to take Vanderbilt. For sure. why and the heck not? I'll tell you why, because Hawaii basically submarined their program. They had like half their roster leave when they fired Todd Graham, and like it's just a hot mess right now. It is a hot mess, but the point is, and this is what you saved the end for, was I was going to set up the hot mess. You got to set it up. Vandy's only favored by seven. That's true. So that's what does true. that tell you about Vandy? <laughs> right? Okay, that's what I wanted to say. I'm glad we got that, but we both took him anyway. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, Daytona Steve is back. Whoa. Now, last year, if you faded all of Daytona Steve's picks, you yeah. had a sensational year. Congrats to you. There's no lock of the week this week because, in fairness to Daytona Steve, he's following our plan, which is, hey, I can't make a lock of the week if I've seen no one play. Super valid. Totally agree. He does have a three-game parlay for you. And these are not typical Daytona Steve odds of like 65 million to one. The odds are six to one. Perhaps Daytona Steve has like gotten fit in the offseason. He stopped smoking cigs and being at the Greyhound, the Greyhound track. I'm not sure what he's doing with this healthy lifestyle pick here, but he's got Nevada over New Mexico State, Utah State, Favored by 27 over UConn and Illinois by 10 versus Wyoming. Odds again are 6-1. to one. We'll see if Daytona Steve can start off the year on a good <laughs> note. Alan, are there any other items that we missed or have? I don't think so. But we'll be back next week to get you ready for Utah. Uh, any other news or any kind of th- things that we want to talk about? We will be back, Alan. Every single week. Oh, for sure. Until the end of January. Yes, definitely. And I know for a lot of our listeners, we're often like phantoms. We're gone, then we come back. We're gone, we come back. Well, this is the part of the year where we're here. You can count on us. Turn your dials every Monday on your favorite podcast app. It will be released somewhere between, I don't know, 6 and 9 p.m. It'll be there waiting for you to listen to. And thanks, as always, for listening to this. I know Alan and I have big smiles on our faces. We've had so much fun being back in the studio recording this episode I can't wait, Alan, to break down Utah next week. It's going to be fun. I can't wait to talk some real football. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. Guys, get your footballs back. Hope you're enjoying it. We'll see you next week.
much happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase, plus get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com